0: Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. FG Hello, Bowman. How are you on this, the 24th of June, in the year of our Lord, 2017?
1: The year of our Lord? You mean Lord Donald Trump?
0: No, I mean Lord Sherlock Holmes.
1: Oh, Lord Sherlock Holmes, yes, of course. Uh, the most important of Lords. Hmm. I'm doing just fine, thanks. Uh, it's a bit of a rainy week Humidity, rain here in Ottawa, but uh, we forbear.
0: Uh, lucky for your downstairs bedroom.
1: Uh, indeed, it is incredibly cool right now. It's uh, pretty awesome, actually. Nice. Any spiders these days? No spiders uh, that I've saw recently. There was an ant the other day, but that was it, really.
0: One ant in your in your bedroom. Yes, can't really complain about that, can
1: you? No,
0: no. Why don't, yeah, that... you, why don't you regale our listeners with the story of that wolf spider? It's a great one. It's, it, it's a historical epic.
1: Which wolf spider story is that?
0: It's the one where I was spending the night about 15 years ago and you woke up in the middle of the night and threw it on me.
1: Oh. that's a, That's three wolf spider stories that I know now.
0: Why? What are the other two?
1: The other two was the one I was the uh, waxy buildup I noticed in my ear in the middle of the night that I uh, took out, uh, you know, in my in between dreams, and then woke up in the morning to a dead wolf spider next to my pillow.
0: That's what was in your ear. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so it wasn't the waxy buildup. No, it was not. Oh man. <laughs> Okay. Speaking to my sister, though, I don't think it was a wolf spider, that one. That was one of those yellow sack spiders.
0: Gross. Right, well, that's that might be even better than the time that you woke up flailing arms and legs and threw it on me in the middle of the night. What's the other one? What's the other story you know?
1: Uh, one time I was putting on underwear when I was, like, I don't know, maybe 20 or so, and there was a wolf spider in my underwear.
0: <laughs> it's only funny for me because... I can imagine that. Um, listeners can't necessarily, but wow, you must have screamed.
1: I was definitely in the high octaves.
2: <laughs> mhm.
1: Would you have yes. uh, I I think there's some sort of like villain kind of like the the one in in uh what's his name? Uh Rylot, uh what's his name? The one who was in the uh Copper Beaches. Not the Copper Beaches, the kind of the, the similar story, the proto version of that. Oh, right, okay, speckled band. Speckled band, yeah, exactly. There's some kind of guy with some iron safe contraction in the next room or something like that, and he's, you know, contraption or whatever, and he's uh, putting spiders in my room or something. He wants my fortune. Yeah. uh... Well, I have have news for him. There's not much to be got from that. (laughs) His ambitions are wasted.
0: Completely, if you don't mind me saying.
1: Yes, well, I don't.
0: Right, buddy. And if I did, would you care anyway? I would. I would have respect. <laughs> well, no, I probably wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I would. <laughs> I would have respect. Um yes. I, I would choose. I would choose when to ridicule
1: and when to jest. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, I did like how he turned that kind of like uh, side story back to Sherlock Holmes in some way, though. I thought uh, that was pretty cool.
0: Cool on your part. I had. I, I didn't really play that strategy. Um, no. But it's funny, though, isn't it? How humidity and Temperature make us think of things. Humidity and temperature are certainly a part of some of these stories we're playing with tonight or today.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that for sure.
0: Well, they will be. Um, uh, do you want to say anything before we get started here on the work of the adventures? Because this is us now looking at episode number four, five. Six. This is our seventh episode on lighting the pipes and. We've got through two novels and twelve short stories, and this is us starting the memoirs, the second collection of short stories. You want to say anything about the adventures of Sherlock Holmes?
1: Um, I think compared to the short stories as a whole, sorry, compared to, to, the, uh, to the to the you know, this the uh, study in Scarlet and the Sign of Four. Uh, I really enjoyed the short stories. I think you get a better sense of Holmes as a character in these in these little short in in, in these little episodes, these little vignettes. Then you kind of do, I think, in the first two novels. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and I- I'm guessing that. <clears throat> well, I don't know if this is true, but I'm guessing that this is kind of the form that Doyle's most comfortable with in writing his character. Although they're often far-reaching stories, and there are bits of the narratives that feel like they want to be novels. Um, yes, this is that probably is somewhat what he detrimental,
1: wants. I think, to the finished product a little bit. Some... It is,
0: we've seen it two or three times, and we'll see it again before we finish the series, I'm sure. But today, uh, I, I figure it's a good idea to start by just really briefly getting our feelings about the adventures, because they're over now, and at the last episode, we didn't do a ranking of them. Um, we didn't need to, you know, we're not at that stage yet where we're going to rank these stories in terms of our favorites, but any standout moments for you from the adventures?
1: Oh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I really liked the Blue Carbuncle. That was a good kind of comic mystery. Mm-hmm. As did I. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Copper Beaches. That was a great finale to to the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, in my opinion.
0: I don't disagree. I also thought that was a good story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The Engineer's Thumb was a great experiment. Experiment that paid off, and I think the Copper Beaches uh, benefited from that as well.
0: Yeah, stylistically, The Engineer's Thumb is a standout for me. I I like the elements of, um, well, I, I kind of like the the grotesque. Even if it is light, it is kind of grotesque, and there's certainly... a little bit
1: of Hitchcockian elements too mm. in there as well.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because we we focused on Poe and his character of Dupin a little bit, um, but the truth is, it's really it it kinda of lends itself more to what you would imagine the Hitchcock kind of story doing, doesn't it? Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, characters. Any characters stand out for you?
2: Hmm.
1: I really I really liked uh, Violet Hunter in the Copper Beaches.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Powerful, yeah. Well, powerful. She was powerful for her time and still a very engaging female character.
1: And I and I love the uh I think it was the the bartender or the innkeeper in the Blue Carbuncle. Which How ones? Holmes just kind of just pissed him off, and he, you could just tell he was annoyed by it, and you kind of agreed with with, with him in a way.
0: Oh, you mean the the polterer, the guy who was um, selling. Who the polterer, yeah, yeah. The polterer, yeah. And in Covent yeah. Garden, yeah. He was he was cool.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of the of another character that really stood out for me. Irene Adler. I, I suppose, but I think I had so many... I was a bit disappointed with her given, you know, in popular, popular culture her presentation as her character mm-hmm. was kind of muted, you know what I mean?
0: It was. I, I wasn't terribly impressed with that. Um, my highlight from Scandal and Bohemia was uh, Watson throwing the pipe bomb through the window. The cherry
1: bomb, yeah, Bart Simpson style.
0: With nothing more than just assurance from his partner, his mentor, well no, partner, that uh, he'd be okay and he'd meet him on the street.
1: <laughs> yeah, Absolutely.
2: Anyway.
1: I also uh liked the uh the, the uh the jilted cuckold almost I guess cuck lord in uh, uh what was the story now? Um just a second. <laughs> um Saint the, Simon. the one who is in the Noble Bachelor. Mm hmm. Yeah. They kind of presented him as being as a bit of a prick, but he ended up kind of being a very understanding guy and understandably upset by the whole circumstance, but very forgiving in in his own kind of snooty way.
0: Yeah, he was forgiving. Um, Little else he could do. Would you recommend one of these stories to... or Sorry, if you were to recommend one of these stories to a starter, which of them would you say? Here, read this one. I would say The Copper
1: Beaches. You'd start with that, would you, yeah? Yes I would.
0: Interesting. I don't know yeah. that I don't know that I would start with the copper beaches. I don't know that's the first one I'd put them to. I would certainly say that I enjoyed it, but I think one of the reasons I enjoyed it is because I already had, having read eleven of them already in two of the novels, I'd already had a, a good feel of Holmes's character and I found I found more nuance in there than than before. But there are some pretty good standout moments of shock and interest. Uh, yeah, that's a good shout. That's not a bad shout. I don't think I would go that one though. I think the Holmes story that typifies what we get throughout that is, or might best represent Holmes, I think, is the work that he does in the Blue Carbuncle. That that one for me would be the one I might say, yeah, check this one out. Because of the holiday season, it's also maybe something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more lighthearted, but still a good. Detective roundabout, though not my favorite. Yes.
1: I think it really depends on the person, on the stories that you recommend too, right? If I know mm-hmm. a person's really into kind of like the more horror kind of a- gothic aspects of of it, then I would recommend like the Copper Beaches or something along those lines. If if someone just wants a standard Holmesian kind of story, then I would recommend uh, the Blue Carbuncle or even like the Barrel Coronet, for example.
0: The Barrel Coronet is in my mind, uh, the weaker of the two Jewel stories, even though it, yeah, I think it's the weaker of the two. Uh, I don't like it quite as much, although we get more detection from Holmes. I don't think it's as well-conceived a narrative, and it's not as fun either.
1: No, it's not as fun as The Blue Carbuncle. I definitely agree with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, when the the bellboy of the hotel steals the Jewel, he's got no idea what he's going to do with it. He just boffs his way through it. Whereas, um, what's his name... George, what's his name? George uh, Burnwell in the uh, Barrel Coronet is just a slimy criminal that wants to steal it and sell it, right? That's right. So it's a little more fun when we see and hear the bellboy. Uh, or the is he a steward, maybe? I don't know what he is. Anyway, he yeah, I, I just kind of like that one more. I thought it was more fun. But okay, that's cool. So there's some ideas about the adventures. Overall, I thought the adventures were, were good. Were, I enjoyed them, but... Uh, I'm I'm glad to be through the first year of Holmes writing or sorry of Doyle writing for the Strand because now we're moving into the second year this uh collection we're moving into the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes has got an interesting history um, particularly because of the stories omitted in the early phases of publication Have you
1: Yes. Have you got uh, anything as assume, you want to say as I Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, we, we had a little um Uh, 11th hour mix-up with our stories last night, didn't we?
1: I would call it a crisis.
0: (laughs) You'd call it a crisis? Oh, it wasn't a crisis for me.
1: Well, the fact that I was about to go to a barbecue after work and whatnot, so I knew that um, I'd I'd have to watch myself a little bit because i have to go home and uh, read read the book.
0: Oh, right. Okay, so this was an 11th hour crunch for you. I wasn't aware of that. Basically, I'm over here in Scotland, Josh is um, working from Canada, and this is probably probably the best example of the publication history we can offer you. The uh, Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, when they were compiled after the first year of publication, um, the second chronological adventure written in the January edition, 1893, is called The Adventure of the Cardboard Box. Now, the cardboard box wasn't published in... Well, actually, it was published in the first American edition of the memoirs, but was very, very quickly retracted after then censored, right? Then, yeah, through the censors, and it was <clears throat> it was retracted from uh, that or further publications uh, because Harper, the American publisher, um, didn't know until later on that Conan Doyle himself actually suppressed publication of the cardboard box in the first UK edition of the memoirs deeming it unsuitable for younger readers, whereas in America, it had already been out to a limited copy print. So what happened is subsequent memoirs were published without it in the United States, and in the UK, it was put back in shortly after. So interestingly (laughs) enough, uh, if you are uh, a UK reader and you have yourself a copy of the collected works or the memoirs, this will be where it was rightfully meant to be in terms of its chronology. The second story in the memoirs, but if you are an American or North American reader, it's a good chance that uh, you won't find this story until you reach the collection called *The Last Bow*. And I do not believe that's a chronologically—well, I know it isn't chronologically interested. It's—it's uh, it's kind of more compilation, isn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so. Right.
0: Well, anyway, that's that's one of the interesting things. So Josh, of course, sitting down to start his uh, his reading, his final. Pieces of reading there uh, later in the week was about to begin. The stockbrokers, something I can't remember. No, I finished it, the stockbrokers clerk. Oh, right. So you did read that one. So you're a story ahead of me. Well, that's yes, good. I that's said. good. That that'll give you a, a leg up on the next round.
1: There we go. Hmm.
0: Oh well, we're not uh, we're not perfect, are we? We're just we're just
1: human. To err is human, as they say.
0: Indeed. Well, look, pal. Um, y- you want to light these pipes? Or you want to explain how the pipes are lit, I should say, before uh, breaking well, into to a discussion?
1: Regarding the censoring, so oh, sorry, okay. what aspects of the story um, required censoring in in the U.S. or even in England? And why would Conan Doyle want to suppress it? Any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think um, the fact that you've got body mutilation, double murder, red mist rage, uh, extramarital affair, revenge, unrequited love, alcoholism. I think maybe all of those things were a recipe for a little bit too much in the reader's face, in the mind of Conan Doyle. And maybe, you know, I mean, people have been doing this ever since they've been writing stories, you know. What's the best way to get someone interested in something? To tell them that True. they're not allowed to read it, right? So I don't know that that was a ploy. I'm not suggesting it was a strategy that was uh, taken. But I think, well, certainly Conan Doyle himself suppressed a publication in the first edition of the memoirs he didn't think it was fit for younger readers, and um, perhaps he, like Ian Fleming, was under the silly, uh, self-deluded idea that young people would uh, be picking up his books all the time, to- or wouldn't be picking up his books all the time. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Could be. Well, we'll get more into that, into the more horror, uh, uh, horror details of uh, horrific details. I'm sorry of the. Uh, Uh, cardboard box uh, when we reach that story so I'll I'll just jump into the adventure of the silver blaze
0: yes because the adventure of the silver blaze though we've only been talking through introduction about this cardboard box blaze is considered one of the finest Sherlock Holmes stories and it's the one that leads off the memoirs so break into it Josh Uh, we can talk about the pipes when we get there so yeah break into your summary of silver blaze
1: All right, so kind of giving us sort of like a Citizen Kane news on the march uh, thing. Newsflash, one of the most popular racing horses in Britain has disappeared and his owner found dead. Read all about it. After waiting a day or so for the event to play out in the papers, Holmes gathers Watson for a train to Dartmoor, just near Devonshire, where they meet the owner of Silver Blaze, our storied stallion, one Colonel Ross, as well as the Leonine prodigy of Scotland Yard Inspector Gregory. I say Leonine as opposed to the ferret-like Lestrade. (laughs) (laughs) On the train and the cab ride through Devonshire to the Vic John Straker's house and stables near King's Pyland, we get the nitty-gritty on the details of the case. Afterwards, they arrive at Straker's abode. It is sad. Holmes apparently attends eyes-wide-shut costume vets with with, with an avian twist, judging from his recognizing the now-widow Straker at one such bacchanalia... But she most certainly did not attend. Holmes then ignores Gregory's fine police work and rebuffs Colonel Ross, who he finds Cavalier, despite the fact that Holmes doesn't realize he is more cryptic than a character from Lost and takes Watson off into the moor to investigate the scene of Straker's death, as well as using the old scientific method, or at least the hypothesis portion of said method, to guesstimate that Silverblaze did wander off. Across the way, he finds fresh horse tracks combined with some human boot prints that leads him to Mapleton, where he finds Silver Blaze in the sketchy hands of Silas Brown, Lord Backwater's trainer, who is an old assholic mofo with with a riding crop. But Holmes puts on the charm and menace with zero chill, and he gleans from Brown that Silas Brown found Silver Blaze on the moor after his trainer's untimely death and brought him back to the stables to prevent him in running for the Wessex Cup. Holmes has already solved the crime by now, of course, and after an inquiry made on the side, he tells Colonel Ross, who is in, who is impatient his prize winner, and his trainer is dead after all. But all will be answered soon, but just continue with the race, come Monday anyways, while I withhold key information to the case and that the suspect Fitzroy Simpson can stew in jail whilst the skullful looms closer and closer. You know, that kind of stuff. Holmes then tells Watson that Ross's concern and skepticism is just too much for him, and he wants to take the piss out of him as well. Uh, so Holmes is an asshole, but he's not 100% a dick. Or is he? Discuss. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so when Monday comes everyone is at King's Pylon for the Wessex Cup and lo and behold Colonel Ross notices there is an extra horse in the mix when one should be missing Holmes then makes Ross's dance for a bit taking on the role of that kid you knew from childhood who loved Clue and who knew the murderer was but was really turned on by the fact of how terrible you were at not knowing <laughs> well Colonel Mustard is dumbfounded by the revelation that A. the extra horse is in fact Silver Blaze painted up by Silas Brown and B. Silver Blaze is the culprit Mr. Blaze on the moor with the horse hoof. Turns out Straker was leading a second life complete with a mistress who likes ostrich costumes and planned to score some betting pool cash by laming Silver Blaze with a surgical knife, but old Silver got the prescience to figure out Straker was doing him no good and bashed his brains in with one swift kick to the noggin. Meanwhile, Murphy's law fell into poor Fitzroy Simpson. Ross appreciates Holmes and his talents in the end after this revelation. Instead of his half-answers and his forced promises... I guess Ross would never have been a lost fan. And Holmes is like, naturally. And so wins the case of the Silverblaze.
0: I got a question for you. Do you think do you think that Silverblaze knew what was going
1: on? Oh yeah. He was he 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 knew. He knew, man. And he just he just rifled a kick. That he rifled a kick and he's like, I'm getting the F out of here and you're gonna wander around in the moor, you know, like maybe uh, maybe go find Heathcliff or something. <laughs>
2: yeah, Kathy. Or the Hound
1: of the Baskervilles, see what he's up to. That's a good spin-off. Silver Blaze and the Hound of the Baskervilles, <laughs> or Silver Blaze and Heathcliff.
0: <laughs> Silver Blaze and Heathcliff, I th- I'd love that.
1: <laughs> Emily Bronte would too, for some strange yeah. reason.
0: Right, nice work, sir. Good
1: work. So, uh, thank you.
0: What about the publication? I mean, we know this. We know this came out in December of the um, 1892 Strand. But I mean, what did you come across in terms of notes on it, or um, or people's reception to it now or then?
1: I I pretty much got the gist that it's one of the most favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. I really enjoyed it, 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 you know, despite, you know, I have a bit of a kind of a caustic kind of view to some of the story points, but uh, I I really enjoyed the story, and I can see why a lot of people did. It had all the classic Holmes elements in it, and at the same time, it was a different kind of mystery, and I think that's what made made it refreshing, and it was something, I think, being like a public horse being stolen and all this sort of stuff, I I just just think it it just stands out Among a lot of the other stories.
0: Okay, cool. Um, What did our friends think of it at uh,
1: Goodreads? What did they think of it at Goodreads? Yeah, that's
0: what I'm asking you. Do you know? I I, I do
1: not know.
0: Oh, well, neither do I I, because I didn't do any research for that. Oh you didn't no I thought I thought we were gonna do the uh, I thought we were gonna take care of the plot summaries for our stories and the we would just do everything for our stories
1: I so, assume that we would just swap the plot summaries for uh, I would do one plot summary and you would do the second one and I would do the third one and then you would do the publication on the first and last and the third and I would do the one in the middle
0: Oh well no uh, <clears throat> we screwed that one up royally because I've got no I've got no review information for uh, stories one or three. Can't help you with that. Well, I can. I mean, I can find stuff, but no. We're gonna we're gonna be flying solo without that then. Lucky I've got well, good I mean, musical. Uh, lucky I got good musical interludes today.
1: Well, there's musical interludes, yes, but there's also something incredibly powerful, some device that I can use that you know that Holmes would be mystified by at the same time, um, that I could use to obtain said quotes. Um, oh, well. You, are you referring to the internet, the interwebs? Hmm.
0: One thing I do find funny the though, hey, about this story pardon. is um, pardon. So one of the things I find funny about the story is it begins with a very abrupt um, narrative technique, and I know that this works well for the character, but as a reader, I quite like this too—that you just start in in the middle of a conversation. Or yeah, Holmes is quite terse and abrupt, but. I, I like how it starts. I'm afraid, Watson, that I'll have to go, said Holmes, as we sat down together to our breakfast one morning. Go, where to? To Dartmoor, to King's Parliament Doesn't waste any time, you know. Yeah, it, I, oh, I like dear. it just jumps
1: into it. Got, got right into the story, uh, you know, like with that news flash about the, you know, the, about the case itself and everything, and mm-hmm. it just built up and built up. And when you get to the case and start investigating, you kind of have a good idea about, in your own way, what might have happened, and then you get the clues, and you can put things together, and it was a really good mystery in that way. Hmm. So I didn't—I so, didn't feel lost by the whole scenario like I do with some Sherlock Holmes stories, where Deus ex Sherlockia, you know, at at, at the end.
0: It's interesting that you say that because I, my experience of reading this story um, <clears throat> was a little bit mystified. Like I—I didn't, or mystifying. I couldn't follow all these clues, as I have been able to in a couple of these stories. I felt like this was Sherlock Holmes, like he was back in Brixton Road um, with A Study in Scarlet, already five, six steps ahead of the reader, not one or two in some of the more generous stories that we've seen from the adventures. I felt like Holmes was five or six steps ahead, and I was playing catch-up a lot. That didn't really take me out of the story. I, I'm not necessarily issuing that as a major criticism of it, but I, unlike yourself, was kind of skipping to keep up with him here in this one. And I must admit, I didn't capture, first reading at least, I didn't capture a lot of the minutiae that looking back I can now see, oh yeah, this makes sense. Does that make, you, you know what I mean?
1: Well, they mentioned the whole thing about how the about the dog, you know, how it didn't do anything and how important that was, and that sort of made me kind of think, you know, that there are clues being laid out here, and I may not see them, but I'm sure in the end everything will make sense, you know. And that's kind of, I guess, that was a hope that it, you know you have that hope that that it will make sense. I suppose mm-hmm. you have that faith in the story that that it will um, reach that conclusion.
0: Yes, but the dog thing didn't come till the end. Like that wasn't really a clue. It was just me- it was mentioned when the question came. Uh, but well, was- they mentioned like
1: like when they mentioned the mutton, and then they mentioned the gate being open, and all these different questions that Watson was asking, and and whatnot, and about the fact that like you know the the uh, knife in the uh, in the thigh and whatnot. It just uh, it just all those little bit, bits and pieces to me. Yeah, Holmes was ahead of us, but I was intrigued enough by the mystery that. I wasn't bored by, you know, waiting for Holmes to give us the whole explanation, you know? Like, in the end, everything made sense, I guess that's what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, it did make sense. Uh, there's nothing that was left hanging inconclusively. It did all wrap up for me. Uh, I just didn't, yeah. feel, I didn't feel like I was walking with Sherlock in some in, in like a Playfair mystery type way that we have seen in the past. Uh, I felt like this was back to the original design of Holmes, really sharp on the tack, three or four steps ahead of the reader, And we were playing catch up, but obviously you're more conditioned uh, in this, in in Doyle's stories maybe than I am. Um, Mm. Maybe you, I don't know. I mean, I I think my radar was on. It just wasn't bleeping. Like I wasn't picking up on these, on these nuances. So I see not, not the way maybe I, I could have, or the way that you did, but whatever, this is just, just, you know, I was looking at other things, I guess, and.
1: Oh. Yeah, well, looking at it through like different uh, reviews that, that people put, um, there's definitely, as you mentioned, and as I read another in, in other sources, that this is a very popular Sherlock Holmes story, and there is a lot of praise for it. Um, uh, for <laughs> there's like uh, where the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime comes from. One person said, so maybe that's some kind of idiom that. Uh, evolved that we just missed the time period where that was a popular idiom.
0: Well, it's an idiom, but it's also the title of a Mark Haddon novel, isn't it, about the young boy with autism?
1: I had no idea about that. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Did he read Sherlock Holmes in the novel, The the Autistic Boy?
0: Uh, I don't recall. And I don't recall because I've never read it. I just know of it because a couple of colleagues that I work with uh, at school, they think fondly of it and they teach it with some of their classes, so... I'll uh, I'll have to ask them. Uh, it's a very good book, from what I've told, and it's certainly not a book I've actively avoided. It's just one of these things that you know, I haven't read.
1: One person says here, not my favorite Sherlock story, but interesting nonetheless.
2: Hmm. Another
1: guy said, a man is dead and a horse is lost. Four stars. Right?
0: <laughs> I love, <it. laughs> love that one.
1: Horse racing mystery reminded me of the Dick Francis murder mystery. What's that? Apparently, an American uh, detective uh, novelist. Uh, probably something
0: I should know, but I don't.
1: This one is kind of uh, sends you for a bit of a, <laughs> a what the heck. Uh, based on the legend of Parsifal and his search for the Grail, using <laughs> Jungian psychological <laughs> concepts. Uh, right. <laughs> uh,
0: well, do you know what? Let's. Yeah, okay. It's a little highbrow, perhaps, for what we're trying to ac- uh, accomplish but i that but, guy probably
1: holds a teacup with his pinky sticking out that's all i have to say <laughs> he
0: probably does uh but doyle was a medical doctor he was also a spiritualist i mean it's not impossible that he put a lot of <laughs> he, that he put a lot of existential or or spiritual or philosophical thought into into these these little tales i mean well shit we know he did but i don't know that um in fact, this is sorry. I'm, I'm jumping five or six steps ahead of myself, but this is a great example of a story where he does put a lot, you know, his his medical knowledge to the uh, to the front, doesn't he? In, in, in,
1: with the knife and talking surgical about t-
0: the, yeah, the surgical equipment and all that type of stuff.
1: That's true, yeah, and about how like that particular knife can go subcutaneous and and not leave a trace, and yet and yet hamstring the animal, and that's uh, definitely yeah, that's, that's him putting his putting his work and. Also, going back to his medical career or his medical, you know, um, his residency, you know, his teacher that he had, who he based on Sherlock Holmes, is is uh, his his name, his uh, or self sake is in full uh, gear here too. So it is. Uh, you can, yeah, you can probably tell this with a story that he was very interested in writing, and, and you can tell that, and of all the a lot of there's a lot of detail in it and whatnot, and there's a lot of uh, complexity to to, to the storyline. You know, lots of characters and. And it's a lot bigger than a lot of other Sherlock Holmes that you normally re- read. You know, mm-hmm.
0: it is, and I think that's a good way to describe it. There's a big scale to the feeling of this, and yeah, they're leaving London. They're traveling to um, <clears throat> Dartmoor, as you say. And well, look, why don't, why don't we just light these pipes and get
1: into it? Um, let's light. Let's light these pipes. I think yeah. uh, the kind of people at Goodreads uh, give us a kind of a, a, a taste of things. So. Kind we'll leave did. it at that.
0: Let's not punish ourselves too too much for um, miss, missing up our research responsibilities. We've we've done, we've got everything covered apart from a couple of uh, social reviews. So we'll just fill the time with other things. And I'm excited to get into this. So light the pipes, Josh. What are we doing here?
1: Well, before we light the pipes, uh, regarding the reviews, uh, we do use GoodRead reviews a lot for these stories so far because there is not a lot of critical um, judgment that's been been p- published that's easy to find uh, b- these days on Sherlock Holmes except for modern you know li- li- literary reviews so Goodreads is where we was where we go to get an idea of the popular taste I guess of Sherlock Holmes
0: yeah I mean I've got more to say about that when we get to the cardboard box uh, because I've uh, I-, I looked a lot more a lot more carefully I suppose because I thought that was a story I was doing so I dug a little deep Deeper to find evidence of um, of the time, contemporary reviews and, and thoughts about the um, about these stories, and well, I can say more about that generally. Then, but what I would just say to echo your point is that out with uh, academic research um, and subscribing to journals or microfilms of newspapers in the past, and hey, there's a possibility that you know that's available to us, but. Um we' you know, we're not full time at what we're doing here. We're just uh, enthusiasts, hobbyists really about this stuff. So for the average reader, there's not a lot of access to uh, the print journalism of the time that would give quality um, <clears throat> commentary on these stories. Their reputation and the public's feelings for them are best understood through their numbers and sales. And by this time, the Strand Magazine was relying very heavily and would almost pay anything Doyle wanted for these stories. They were exceptionally popular, and we have to go with that. That some were going to be more hit than others. And I think, though, that if if you look at what we're trying to do here with this series on Sherlock Holmes... And in the context of this arid wasteland of decent publicly minded Holmes scholarship, it is kind of encouraging because we are doing a service with this product uh, and this project rather more than mainstream, a little bit less than full academia we are providing, I think, pretty engaging, informed, and hopefully entertaining takes on these stories and uh, a broad audience who maybe isn't looking for PhD inspiration, though, if they find it, awesome, um, but <laughs> but instead just a confident and fun tour through through some of, you know, literature's finest stories and this great character, then, you know, we're giving them that with stops along the way for biography and history and culture and, and just a little bit of good fun. So I, th- I think that, what we're actually providing in this podcast, yeah, we're satiating our own appetites, but I think we're actually doing something that's kind of niche, because there's a lot of, as you're saying, Goodreads, blurbs, like, it didn't speak to me, and shit like that, and then there's a lot of PhD work that is, you know, under copyright and license from universities and public, or sorry, private individuals, and we we, we can't access these historical documents and records and microfiche and all this, so I think that we're actually doing the best we can, and the analysis of the story speaks for itself. We're, we put a lot of time into this, and we do a hell of a better job than Goodreads. But we use Goodreads for that popular opinion, don't we?
1: We do, and you know what? It's a good tool in that respect. And it's we great know we tool, don't use yeah. people's names or whatever. We just use the actual quotes. And yeah, well, I'll, so I'll be I using
0: don't... people's names in a few moments. <laughs> There's some you have to point out, eh? Absolutely. Okay, look, pal, um, that's good. Uh, I think we've set ourselves up well. Just remind listeners and ourselves what this PIPES is all about.
1: All right, so before we light our PIPES, uh, we'll just uh, get down to our acronym. So PIPES, P for principal, that's our dynamic duo. Then we have the uh, investigation, that's I, uh, that's the story, the narrative, the, uh, the, the, the details of the case itself, both in quality and in structure. Uh, then we deal with the um, perpetrators. That's the next P, and uh, that, that's basically the suspects, the the villains, the uh, or just the uh, the poor schmoes that get caught up in crime. Then we have the environment, uh, so the atmosphere, the locations, uh, any kind of geographical locus in there that uh, helps with the narrative of the story. That's what we falls under that category. Then finally, S we have our supporting cast. So the 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 denizens of London, the denizens of Dartmoor, or any other the surrounding area outside of London, where Sherlock Holmes uh, goes on his cases.
0: Excellent, well said. And uh, as we do in every episode, lighting the pipes is an important part of getting us started. And this is us getting into our discussion on Silver Blaze. So here we are, lighting the pipes. Pipes are lit, boyo.
1: Just uh, as an aside story, last weekend, um, no, two weekends ago, I was in Toronto, and we went to a humidor in in, in Yorkville, actually. Uh, it has like a, it was a cigar store, like on a bottom level with a walk-in home humidor, really, really nice. Uh, but there, outside of the humidor, there was a whole wall just of different pipes you could get, and I was desperately looking for a rosewood pipe just mm-hmm. so I could kind of have one, you know, for those. Disputatious moments that I get. <laughs> Did you find one? I couldn't see the final rosewood one. No. Ah, bummer. Now I was kind of. I was also uh, looking for. Uh, there's another character who we're going to meet uh, with that uh, amber uh, pipe. So I just wanted to see if uh, there was one one, one of, the, of those as well. But uh, I could not find one either.
0: Oh well. You don't smoke, anyway. So even as a collector's item, I think your money is better in your pocket.
1: I agree, I agree. And moving forward, um, we just look at the principles here. So our principles, of course, uh, Holmes and Watson. What uh, was uh, your your view of our protagonists?
0: Well, my, my immediate reaction after finishing the story was that Holmes was very sharp in this one. Um, and that Watson was a little bit more active. He was asking some questions. Yeah. And, and Holmes seemed to be impressed with his friend. Almost like this was, I mean, it's it's a silly comparison but you know you've got someone doing a driving test right like and then you've got the guy who's taking the points on and taking the points off what you do I kind of felt like this was Holmes assessing Watson in a way that we hadn't really seen him at least fully do before
1: yeah I agree like Holmes was on all cylinders for sure but Watson was a really good uh, uh, not a foil but he was uh, it was a good companion for Holmes in this one and he seemed to kind of be in this case, in most cases, Watson is kind of the you know the surrogate for the audience, so we're as lost as he is. But mm-hmm. in this case here, Holmes was almost one or two steps behind Holmes. Uh, sorry, Watson was one or two steps behind Holmes. Whereas, as you mentioned, um, you were much much further behind.
0: Listen, uh, at the very beginning of the story, Holmes and Watson they leave rather swiftly for Dartmoor, but something happens. Uh, I'll just read this little bit out at the beginning. Uh, where, wherein Holmes calculates the speed of the train? Did you make a note
1: of that? Yes, uh, with the signposts. Like w- w- Watson was using the standard posts to tell to tell the the the, uh, the 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 difference, like the actual markers they had, right? Yeah. Whereas I think they're called yard markers.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's remarkable to me how this is a, done as like a side note almost. Like Holmes just Qu- throws it out. Quarter mile
1: posts. Quarter mile posts. Uh huh. And then. And then you have Holmes. Um, now, just not to steal your thunder, do you have the quote? Because I have the quote right here.
0: I do too, but go. you go ahead. You, you, you steal my thunder. I don't mind. Okay.
1: We're going well, said he. That's Holmes. Looking out of the window and glancing at his watch. Our rate at present is 53 and a half miles an hour. I have not observed the quarter po- mile posts, said I, that being Watson. Nor have I, but the telegraph posts upon this line are 60 yards apart, and the calculation is a simple one. I presume that you have looked into this matter of the murder of John Straker and the disappearance of Silver Blaze. So Holmes is already in that mindset you can tell right then and there, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's just already seen the mathematics everywhere
0: well, there was a there was a short footnote uh, about this or an annotation oh, yeah, you're annotated in my annotated edition, this wonderful Klinger annotated edition. and I followed it, and I just like to read a part of it out because I would never really have have stopped to think about it, but um sherlock scholars certainly have um <clears throat> here's what he says da, 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 yeah. sherlock scholars have been fascinated by sherlock Holmes's apparent mathematical wizardry in calculating the speed of the train in which he and watson went flying along to exeter a.s galbraith in the real moriarity finds holmes's assertion of the calculation's simplicity to be inconsistent with his precise reasoning character because the nature of the calculation requires a standard of accuracy much looser than the exact conclusion that Holmes ultimately draws given that the speed of the train would have varied probably remaining constant for no more than 2 minutes at a time Holmes's casual use of an ordinary watch to count the seconds from the passage of one telegraph post to another would necessarily have produced an error of at least 1 or 2 seconds Galbraith points out that a 1 second error in a 2 minute span at the speed the train was travelling would account for an inaccuracy of half a mile an hour then The man of precise mind, Galbraith deduces, even if confident of almost superhuman accuracy in his measurement of the time, would say between 53 and 54 miles an hour. And a more reasonable statement would be between 52 and 55. Is Holmes trying to impress Watson, or is Watson trying to impress his readers? Now, I got a couple things to say about that. By the way, that's not the whole point, right? Like, it goes on for another page, but... There's like a real big debate about this among the super hardcore fans, and all I can hmm. th- all I can think to myself, and I do recall us having an earlier conversation about this, is that there are some people out there who who just want to find Conan Doyle's mistakes and say, no, no, this wouldn't work because science tells us this, and sci- like, yeah, I shouldn't be surprised that there are these types of, uh, well, they're not filibusters, but they're
1: dicks, really. Like, Star- like they're like terrible Star Trek nerds.
0: Yeah, terrible Star Trek nerds, I know. But it, i just I marvel all the time at these little things that myself, a casual reader of Conan Doyle, uh, would pick up. And my note in my book, as I was reading, was exactly what I said. Interesting, offhandedly, a side note: Holmes calculates the speed of the train. Uh, these guys argue over it and write papers about it. Like there's actually <laughs> there's actually a market for this stuff.
1: Yeah, well. Hundred year, a hundred and uh, what, like about a over hundred year old character, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah, you got to reinvent him.
0: I guess so. You got to do stuff to reinvent your
1: your um, your mythology, don't you? You know, going back to like it's, it's such a you know refreshing for Watson to you know to be a very a useful tool in Holmes's investigation and and just a really I, and 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 Holmes acknowledge him and, as a great companion. Uh, there's this Canadian. Um, uh, cartoonist. Her name is Kate Beaton. She does this great. She has this great website uh, called Hark a Vagrant. I don't know if you heard of her. I went to Mount Allison with her. Really?
0: Yeah, I got two of her books upstairs in my uh, on my shelf. She's great.
1: That's insane. I love Kate Beaton stuff. That's awesome. Actually,
2: cool. I, I mean, not,
1: Anyways, I'm
0: not. I'm not a close friends with her or anything. You know, you go to university with someone, you share some classes with them. I knew her, but I'm not. You know, I'm not trying to say that I, you know, I'm pally with her or anything.
1: Oh no, 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 no at all. But I'm, as I think that's that's really cool, though. That's just a great kind of random connection. It is cool, anyways. Yeah. So Kate Beaton, Kate Beaton, as you know, she does a lot of like, uh, like, awesome cartoons about literature and whatnot. In particular, like she's really roasting of the Brontes and especially like the Romantic poets, like Byron and Shelley and whatnot. Um, but she also did, does a couple of strips on on uh, Sherlock Holmes as well. And there's one here, I just want to share here with with, with our audience here. Um, the case of the two Watsons. So we have Sherlock Holmes and he's telling Watson, come here. And then he's you know, Sherlock Holmes is like doing something and Watson comes up behind him. Holmes is like and then Holmes says, You're not Watson. And then all of a sudden another Watson shows up in the next frame. Ah, there you are, Doctor. And then the the real the other Watson's like I say, is that a clue? And then the re- the real Watson says, that is not that is not me. So there's two Watsons here. It, I, one is really short and pudgy. This is the new one that just showed up. And then you have the more regular, more military, you know, like uh, b- barrel-chested Watson, right? So then uh, Sherlock Holmes says, sorry, old, old boy, but you've been replaced. And the real Watson says, by him. And then you have like Watts, the other Watson in the background crawling around like an idiot on the ground. And he's trying to find the clue that Sherlock Holmes is looking for, and Sherlock says they wanted Watson to provide more comic relief. But what, and then the real Watson says being a, a, a brave, intelligent lady killer wasn't interesting enough, and then Sherlock Holmes just simply says pity, and then Watson, the other Watson, the, the new Watson shows up with with a, a clue, and then he's holding a piece of jam in his hand. And he's telling like he's yelling out jam in his hand to Sherlock Holmes. Holmes is like that's not a clue, Watson. That's your jar of jam. And then Watson says again, "Jam." Like he's like Steve Carell in Anchorman or something like that. Anyways, I don't know. I, I just read that that uh, strip last night, and I was just like laughing my head off late in late in the mornings while I was finishing up the uh, uh, <laughs> the cardboard box. Yeah,
0: she's good. She's she does good work, Kate Beaton.
1: Yeah. Anyways, if you, ever, if, you, if you want to, if anyone just go look up uh, Kate Benton, K K Beaton, uh, B E A T O N, uh, and just look up the case of the two Watsons. Google it. It's a really funny strip that I really can't capture in audio formats, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, cartoons uh, cartoons and comics are difficult things to narrate without images.
1: Yeah, because you got to see the expression on the character's face and and the framing of the each different uh, you know of each different thing to kind of get the power of the message, right? So you do. All right. So. Anyways,
0: <clears throat> Yeah, Watson and Holmes, I, I like them a lot in this story. Um, I, I don't think that Watson is, like, incredible, but I think he's about as incredible as he needs to be because this is very much very much a, a story that um, we're amazed at Holmes's work here.
1: And he doesn't throw cherry bombs, which is
0: good. No, that could have been cool if he did, though.
1: Just like random, just like... Because he wanted, you know, because uh, he was, because he found uh, Ross too cavalier for him. Maybe he should have had Watson, like I don't know, shove a cherry bomb up uh, Silver Blaze's arse or something. I don't. <laughs> that would make him run fast. That would oh, be terrible. That would be terrible, a different. Terrible. That would be
0: a different story altogether.
1: That would be. That's something that Heathcliff and Silver Blaze could do in uh, <laughs> some weird fan fiction by Emily Bronte. I don't know.
0: Yeah, and swiftly moving along across the moor. <laughs> well, they're not. Yeah. Anyway, let's move away. Uh, okay, so they reach Dartmoor uh, from the train, and they get to King, they get to King's Piland and they meet Colonel Ross, the owner. Uh, what, what did you make of all this, like the environs and and um, all of the the setup that Doyle gives us for his characters?
1: Well, I mean, we're not on the environs part of the of the pipes yet, but uh, Dartmoor was definitely moody. You know, like with a moor in itself is pretty atmospheric. Uh, a lot of suggestion of, of just, like, primal nature, sinister things going on, um, almost kind of a magical kind of feel to the whole story in the terms of, like, where the stable was, and you can picture, like, in the fog, this horse wandering the moor and the dead body found in there. It definitely leads to the horror atmosphere and just of the grisly murder itself, mm-hmm. even though it really wasn't a murder, per se.
0: No, it wasn't a murder, uh, per se, but certainly still a death. Um yes. Okay, right. Well, we, okay, we can hang on to that stuff if you want. Um, I suppose I'm drying up here of particular things to say about Holmes and Watson because overall in this story, I, I didn't really think they missed a beat. I, I enjoyed no. I enjoyed watching them, and I felt that their relationship was what I was what I wanted from the two of them. Like Watson obligingly goes on the trip, but you know he wants to he's excited to be there and he asks yes. questions he's interested in the investigation and he helps Holmes out and Holmes shares more with him i find too like like i was saying getting back to that sort of um driving instructor type relationship like i feel like he's proud of watson here you know
1: yeah he, yeah i agree i i definitely agree and like uh there's one part here where uh one second
0: Will you, while you're finding that, I'll read this bit that also uh, signifies that. Um, this is the moment when uh, Holmes and Watson are speaking to the uh, stable boy. Uh, a minute later, however, when Hunter rushed out with the hound, he was gone, and though the lad had ran all around the building, he failed to find any trace of him. One moment, I asked, this being Watson, did the stable boy, when he ran out with the dog, leave the door unlocked behind him? Excellent Watson excellent murmured my companion. The importance of the point struck me so forcibly that I sent a special wire to Dartmoor yesterday to clear up the matter. The boy That's locked the, the door before he left it. The window I may add was not large enough to go or for a man to go through so these little parts of um, kind of encouragement and support and pride there are only a couple of them in the story but they stand out for me because they're Watson's intelligence and Although chronologically these stories are arranged in very different order in the mythos of Sherlock Holmes, chronologically as a reader, we are encountering each new one. And with each new one, Watson's becoming a little bit more engaging, a little bit more clever, I find.
1: Yes, you got to kind of have that, that standard chronology in the mythos, but at the same time you're also seeing uh, Conan Doyle is perhaps developing Watson into a much interesting character.
0: Yeah, hopefully he is. So... Uh, I like these guys both here. Um, I didn't have a lot of complaint for them. Nor I. I went four point five out of five for Watson and Holmes. I went four point five because I, I, I don't know. I I didn't feel like I enjoyed them enough to go five. But I, I I liked them. I I really really liked them in the story. But I didn't enjoy them enough. I, I really ha-
1: really like them.
0: Oh. Fuck off. I, I enjoyed them, right? Like, in the story, but not enough. I, I didn't enjoy the story enough to go five with this. I understand. Uh, I'm uh, I, I tied with you on that. 4.5 okay. as well. Well, perhaps you can articulate it better
1: than I can. Uh, I think you spoke for us, but in, in I just have to say that uh, this was Holmes at his best. Uh, he was intrigued. He was petty at times. He was brilliant. Uh, he was mischievous and determined all at once. And... Uh, Watson was given some nexus to Holmes's logic machine in this way, and he provided a very good companion and a great sounding board and instead of just being just arm candy. So that's why I give it four point five. I don't give it a full five because uh, to me, there was something extra that Watson could have done more, I think, in this story. And he got he got a bit of fan service here, I guess maybe. In, in this way that, uh, you know, some people like Watson as a character and maybe Doyle wanted to develop him more as a character. And so I think he benefited from the story greatly, but there's just something about it. that's just not five, 4.5. I think is more than satisfactory, uh, a, gr- a grading for the principles in this story.
0: Yeah. It's as near perfect as we can go without giving them full marks. That is correct. So I'm, I'm not upset with my 4.5. What all, uh, whatsoever, even if I can't properly say why I feel that way. <laughs>
1: Well, looking into the investigation, um, I was uh, I was pretty happy with it o- overall. The setup is well presented with the public mystery. And Holmes and Watson, you know, they're called in to investigate. After all, hope is lost. It gives the story momentum. Uh, the events leading up and the mystery itself is intriguing, uh, especially since it's a double mystery because you have the death of Straker, but you also have the the mystery of the disappearance of Silver Blaze on top of that. um. The Holmes hypothesizing with Mrs. Straker and the gamble at searching the moor for more horse tracks, that pays off narratively in the end. And while the denouement's a little flat, the reveal of the killer and the asshole victim trope with Straker is inspired and different, in my opinion. So uh, I was very happy with The the Silver Blaze. It's a story. I give it 4.5 in The Investigation.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned the flatness of that denouement because it's one of the things that was itching at my mind when I was reading other people's uh, feelings about this critically and how well received it was. I, I particularly felt like the very end, Conan Doyle just kind of gives up and uh, like um, like a guy who knows he's just talking too much, he stops to move on. Like uh, The last two paragraphs, I think, are, kind of feel like that to me. You've explained all but one thing, cried the colonel. Where was the horse? Ah, It bolted and was cared for by one of your neighbors. We must have an amnesty in that direction, I think. This is Clapham Junction, if I'm not mistaken, and we shall be in Victoria in less than 10 minutes. If you care to smoke a cigar in our rooms, Colonel, I'll be happy to give you any other details which might interest you. End of the story. Like, I just felt like, you know, leave on a little joke, leave on a little quip, something like that. But it just felt like I could say more, but come up to my rooms and I'll tell you then.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. What does like Conan Doyle enjoy the most about the story is like about the, the the going like the investigation itself, and he's not really cared about the caring about the conclusion because in the end Holmes doesn't really care about what happens afterwards. He's more concerned about the case being solved and let's move on. and have a cigar, and you know what, Colonel Ross, you're not too bad. You can come have a cigar with us, you know.
2: Hmm. <laughs> yeah,
1: it could be that. I do have a question. Maybe to he felt bad you, for uh, taking the piss out of him a little bit. At the Yeah, maybe at the beginning. But Ross was a bit of a dick at the beginning, too. A little bit. I think he was concerned. And they call this expert from the city who withholds all this information, you know, like getting off from being withholding and, and doing his own little thing. And then, you know, like I understand his frustration with Holmes, for sure.
0: I do understand his frustration. But also, I mean, Inspector Gregory knows who... Um, he knows who Holmes is and what he's all about, and surely he could have prefaced the arrival of this guy and said, "Look, he's going to have weird methods, but trust me, he's going to get something done for you. So just don't take it too personally."
1: You know. True, what I mean? and that would probably would have happened. So you could kind of say that Ross, the fact that he wouldn't ex- accept the trust that Gregory would have in Holmes, would indicate that perhaps he was being a bit of a snooty ass. In, in a way, and Holmes would probably have noticed that nuance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, here's the thing I want to ask you before we leave the investigation. Um, on mine, it's page 180, 168. I don't know where it is with you, but um,
2: this is at what the What part is it?
0: It's, it's towards the end. It's part of the denouement. Uh, if you look three or four pages from the end of your story, you'll notice that there's a a, a little break between paragraphs.
1: After that, that was the Curious Incident?
0: No. Um, up from that, I believe. From where you are. Sorry, this isn't an ideal thing to be doing. Okay, you see the number of the... Um, you see the, uh, the listing of the horses in the race. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Finish yeah, you. with Mr. Yeah. Heath Newtons and yep. Colonel Wardlaw. Yeah, look over a page, okay? Skip a page, and you'll see that there's uh, two paragraphs with a couple lines between them. One beginning, we had the corner of a Pullman car to ourselves.
1: Okay, yes. Okay,
0: just just above that, I'm going to read this to you, and I'd like to speak with you about it. Um, he stepped past and laid his hand upon the glossy neck of the thoroughbred. The horse, cried both the colonel and myself. Yes, the horse, and it may lessen this, his guilt if I say that it was done in his self-defense, and that John Striker was a man who was entirely unworthy of your confidence but there goes the bell and as i stand to win a little on the next race i shall defer a more lengthy explanation until a more fitting time did holmes use any of his inside knowledge to win money that's my question
1: to you that is a good that's a good supposition
0: yeah and i know that he doesn't he's not motivated by cash really and i know that he's had it but if you think about it there's a few of these stories we've read so far where holmes has had money in his pocket by the time this stuff was done whether it was through the the resale of the jewels and the barrel coronet and he bought them for a little bit more because he was given money remember he was given uh, fairbanks his money not fairbanks what was his name holder holder's money and he just took whatever he wanted from it to purchase those jewels back uh there's this story here that intimates he has cash there are other times we have spoke about it i'm 100 percent sure but is he taking some inside knowledge here and
1: making money on these bets it could be. And maybe his revenge against Colonel Ross is kind of like snootiness is that, well, I'll have Silas Brown uh, paint silver blaze up to a different horse and then and yeah. then bet and then bet on that horse and, and, I mean, yeah, and yeah, get money yeah. from it. He does say he stands we'll to win. I'll have a widdle. cigar with you. Yeah, absolutely. The cigar is on me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. I, I just think it's interesting the way that's dropped in there. And it makes it enjoyable. Um, I really Maybe
1: liked... he is 100% a dick after all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I really did enjoy this story. Um, I know that we haven't gotten into you know surgical detail with it all. But we have spent quite a bit of time getting to this point. I thought that it was a really well-written story. Um, I liked it a lot. I went 4.5 for the investigation because although, as I said, and it may have sounded like a criticism at the start, although Holmes was three or four steps ahead of me and very, very acute in a way that you know I had trouble keeping up with him, I didn't mind that because he was working very well and I enjoyed the story quite a lot. I liked the way it was written. I found the minutiae, though it was a little over my head, I found it engaging... And I was carried away with it. I also loved being out of London and having these guys work like they did in the Boscombe Valley mystery, um, working on the ground, doing different stuff, meeting country folk, you know, and I know that Conan Doyle wasn't a a horsey man, you know, he he didn't like horse racing, he wasn't a fan of it, but this story came kind of like on a recommendation of a friend or a friend or a friend or something from the public, I remember reading this and I think, although some people have called him out for missing, you know, fine points of this or fine points of that in steeplechase or horse racing or whatever, I think he's done a really good job with it in bringing this type of environment to life. Not dissimilar to how Ian Fleming brought the Sarasota Spring scenes to life in Diamonds Are Forever without necessarily, right. you know, having a, oh, although he probably was more of a, um, you know, a, a horse guy. Anyway, don't matter. I just, I liked it, man. I thought it was great. So I went 4.5 with a few misgivings about the, um, or shortcomings regarding the denumont, but 4.5 Denis for me. Mont, yeah.
1: Which seems to be sort of an epidemic in uh, Doyle's works. Mm. He's not interested in the emotional catharsis at all, from what I can see. And that's maybe because it's uh, Holmes himself, Holmes, quoting Holmes himself in a way, in, in the sense of how, the, the minutiae of the drama and, and, and the, the you know the romance behind these things are, are are you know they're they're not important compared to like the, the the facts and the details that solve the case you know
0: that's right well that's good okay so we've got uh we're we're right on par so far 4.5 each
1: 4.5 empiricism over romanticism in the end something like that so moving forward then going into the perpetrators what was your uh, score for the perpetrators, Bowman?
0: My score. You wanna. You want my score before we we go at. Yeah, uh, sure. Just
1: just as as kind of a uh, icebreaker.
0: Okay, I went for a four. I found that Straker was an interesting, uh, an interesting man. Um, he wasn't particularly fleshed out, though. He had an he had an interesting motive. I would love to have seen a scene or two of him being kind of. Um, practicing on the sheep, you know, because we know that he was slitting the Achilles or kind of using that knife to test on the sheep in order to get an idea for how he could do it with the horse without letting it be too obvious. And I thought that was cool. And that would have been a nice scene to have seen some evidence from instead of just mentioned in passing. Um, I also thought that, you know, the idea of him keeping a woman on the side and needing to make money to keep his home and his secret life um, kind of on a balance check. That was kind of interesting, even though it meant throwing away the potential of a livelihood with this racehorse. He's obviously in deep, and I think he was a very troubled man, although we don't we don't get a lot of detail about that. Uh, I thought Ross was uh, not so much a perpetrator as a secondary character, but um, Straker, yeah, basic perpetrator here. I thought he was cool. I went for a four on him. Uh, but I would like to have seen a little bit more or heard a little bit more about him. But you know, I, I was more disappointed. generous.
1: Yeah, you were more generous than I, Bowman. Uh, I was three point five on this. Okay. Um, he was, as you said, an interesting uh, villain in that in that way, and the fact that you know he had these gambling debts, he was sympathetic, and uh, the fact uh, you know he was juggling with a lot, a lot of stress in his life, and he was definitely a lot more human than a lot of the villains we encountered. But I think because he was always in, he was a posthumous kind of villain in that way because he was in, in the end the asshole victim trope um,
0: yeah that's a good way to describe him actually as a posthumous villain
1: Yeah, it's, it's, that to me kind of took off some of the luster I think of his character so that's why I only gave it a 3.5 Fair I found enough. like the mystery itself is the primary antagonist and you could even argue that Silver Blaze is the perpetrator but I think to you and I would have to agree nay on that, <laughs> did you did
0: you spend time writing that last night in the early hours? Oh, my friend! Oh, my <laughs> friend!
1: I had that going for a week. I was. I've been. I've been waiting for this moment.
0: <laughs> well, it was good. <laughs>
1: it was. It got a good. chortle from you, so that's yeah. all that matters. It did, yeah. So you went four
0: for striker, huh?
1: No, I went three point five. actually. Sorry, three
0: three point five. Yeah, I went four.
1: All right, uh, what do you think of the environment? How stables the moors around Dartmoor, the Algrady... Add great atmosphere, as I said, and they really put you like in media res, you know, right in the middle of things. And uh, the details that they mention about King's Pyland and the stables and the procedures of of how the race is done and the different names of the horses, uh, I think I think uh, uh, Colin Doyle really brought to life uh, Victorian late Victorian horse racing, steeplechase or whatever it was. So I give it a solid four.
2: Hmm.
0: Solid four. Interesting. Though not that interesting, because that's exactly what I did too. I thought it was, <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I liked the fact that they were out. Um, I liked the fact that we had a train. I liked the fact that we visited more than one stable, although we didn't really get great detail on the um, the stables. But I, I did love the the guy who was trying to get the inside tip. What was his name?
1: Fitzroy Simpson.
0: Yeah, F- Fitzroy Simpson. There was a wonderful moment uh, or two described, you know, when he's kind of walking around at night. And it is awfully suspect. Like, of course, there are men like this. And
1: he was well known to everyone. But <laughs> he, he just appears in the in the window when Edith Baxter, the maid, is walking by. Like, hello. It's like yeah. a Dickens character with, like, his cravat and his, like, his pommel cane and all this sort of stuff, you know?
0: Almost like, like – yeah, you're right like that. But he was also – Kind of spectral, you know, just the way he he appeared out of out of nowhere, and, yeah, and kind of dis- more, disappeared you know again. What? Yeah, yeah. I liked it. I thought that was cool, and it was nice to be uh, in a rural area. I felt as though Conan Doyle wanted to tribute this part of England in a certain way with a story like this. Now, I don't know exactly why that is the case, but I felt like it was the case. Uh, I was, It was nice. It was a nice story to follow in this environment. Um, I liked the interiors of what we did get, although not a lot, but the exterior shots were really, really nice, or the exterior descriptions, and it was fun to be on the train as well, and it was good. I went four, so a very solid pass.
1: Yeah, four is good for the uh, environs, and, uh... Moving to our supporting cast here, uh, I think it was solid. It's a big uh, one. You know, mm-hmm. Ross's frustration with Holmes is understandable, and he's grateful at the end. And he seemed a decent guy. Uh, than Holmes made him out to be um, in, in in the end, even though he was probably a little bit of a, uh, a little bit dickish. Um, Silas Brown he folded easily but believably. Mrs. Traker was very convincing at being all you know what the fuck with Holmes is questioning. Uh, <laughs> Gregory seemed competent enough to usher some respect from Holmes as well. Um, as, and, you know, I, I like the, uh, the the upper and lower class elements. You have General Ross and you have the stable boys, Ned Hunter, Edith Baxter. Um, all different classes were playing a part in the story, you know, and, and, and that made it unfold in a, ble- in a believable fashion. And it just made it feel very real, this particular story. And so... Again, it's the, it's the solid cast, it's the environment, it's the investigation itself, all the little details and the dynamics between Holmes and Watson. All of these parts play so well together to make this a great story. So I give this particular part of the uh, story um, of the pipes, uh, the, the, the supporting cast, I give it a 4.
0: You give it a 4, okay. Uh, well, here's where I went 3.5 instead. I don't disagree with anything that you said, However, the nature of this story and of the environment is that we're going to have a lot of little characters. And because you have a lot of little characters, I felt like most of them were very thinly sketched out. Uh, Not very thinly sketched out. Because they are necessary. You need to have a stable boy. You need to have Edith in here. You've got to have uh, Stryker's wife. You need to have Colonel Ross. You've got to have Fitzroy. Like, I understand for the story they're necessary. And they're not superfluous in the plot. But when it comes to how deep do we get into them? How much do we care about them? Not really that much. And so I can't give it a 4. I went 3.5. I understand the necessity of them. But because of their necessity to the plot, which I almost gave a 5 to... And the investigation, they are a little weaker when put under the microscope. So for me, 3.5.
2: All right. We'll agree to disagree.
1: That
0: brings us to a total, though, of, uh, let's see what this is, 9 and 8, 17, 20.5 for both of us on this story.
1: Yeah. Wow. Was that our first
0: tie? It was our first tie. All right. I think. I think. Hang on. Let me check. Let me check. Let me check. I think there might have been one story where
2: we
0: tied uh, on. P- sa- nope, this was our first tie, buddy. Well done, good for Bizarre. us. And now, of course, we reach that uh, point of the afternoon, and in our show, where we're choosing a musical selection. Now, I have a couple set aside here for you for the Silver Blaze. Your job is to choose what is behind door number one, or what's behind door number
1: two. Or what's in the cardboard box no that's that's coming later I see well, I choose door number three. there is no door number three I know i I think I outside the box that way.
0: well, you get nothing. you get to listen to me walk into the kitchen and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> that's not as nice as one of these other selections.
1: fine door number one
0: door number one Josh, we mentioned earlier off. Mike that we wanted to do a little tribute to Roger Moore and you my friend have just found a magnificent way of bringing it in. You see Roger Moore started a little film called A View to a Kill which involved a horse and some trickery in the horse stable and we're going to listen to a track from Pegasus or sorry called Pegasus's Stable from John Barry's score to A View to a Kill. Now, before and I th- as we
1: recall, yeah, Roger Moore also played Sherlock Holmes just to connect everything.
0: He did indeed. Would you like to say a few words about Roger Moore uh, at this moment, while uh, just before we play the track
1: in Memorial? Bo- My first James Bond, rest in peace, great Simon Templar, one of his best characters. I think he portrayed. Uh, his Bond was debonair and a gentleman, and he was a fun Bond for the time. He did not have the black heart like Connery or that kind of vicious charm. Uh, he didn't have the intensity of Dalton or the force of nature of Craig, but he lived he, he lived in an era where people needed a laugh. He was you know he was bond where people needed a laugh. And I think he did that well. And even when he was called upon to do a lot more dramatic kind of stuff, he was able to you know show, show his oats there as well.
0: Show his oats. Look at you with all these horse references today.
1: Nay. No, you're right. Yay. <laughs> Yay.
0: Well said. Yeah, Moore's a legend. Uh, he had a nice stint as Sherlock Holmes in New York. Uh, we won't go into that. But yeah, it was really sad to lose him. But this stuff happens, of course. It's the business of life. And he has been a big part of our lives. So yeah. 89 heads up. years is, isn't bad. Uh, Heads up and a tip of the hat to Roger Moore. Uh, We'll miss you, Roger. Actor and humanitarian. Actor and humanitarian. Uh, You could do a lot worse than model your life after his, that's for sure. Uh, Yeah, so well done by selecting door number one. Uh, Pegasus is Stable is the track we're going to listen to. And this does come, as I said, from John Barry's score for a view to a kill. Now, do you want to say anything about St- uh, Pegasus here to uh, make the connection a little bit more adhesive than this
1: seems? Well, apparently, uh, Christopher Walken's Russian villain with a New York accent, uh, <laughs> eugenics experiment or whatever the heck he was, is using like microchips, microchips or something implanted in, in, into horses' uh, legs that inject uh, steroids while they're running <laughs> through a remote control cane that he was carrying at, at the Derby uh, so all
0: right just stop just stop I
1: can't keep it together when I listen to
0: it how ridiculous is that like, really what do you think our bud, our buddy Roger thought when he read the
1: script for that one I bet he wished
0: he was back in New York in cosplay Sherlock.
1: He was probably just—I w- I imagine he would laugh because even like back when View to Kill* was w- w- was out, I believe Christopher Walken was was on *Saturday Night Live* still doing like *The Continentalist* or whatever the heck he was called. Do, 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 do you remember that skit, *The Continentalist*? Yeah, but that came from the mid-late '90s. Was it okay? So maybe yeah. Christopher Walken wasn't a joke back then. Then maybe.
0: No, I think he was. <laughs> I think he was pretty serious about this KGB guy Maxor, and he was playing anyway. Right. Thank you, buddy. You've done it. Here we go. This is our uh, segue. Pegasus is stable. A few moments from A View to a Kill. Q grows in uh, in its seriousness, but I think that does well to exemplify the type of mystery and intrigue going on here in the Dartmoor environment of our two rival stables and the disappearance and then finding again of Silver Blaze and of course (laughs) Sherlock's investigation thereof. Any final words on this before we move on?
1: I think we've covered uh, the silver blaze to its extent. So have I. So
0: why don't we move on to the second story published in January, 1893, The Adventure of the Cardboard Box. and What's that sound?
1: Moving in my chair. Ah, it's
0: It's not you you breaking wind then.
1: No, that's just the leather chair here. Sorry about that. It's
0: it's quite all right. Um, You know me, I don't mind. Yeah, okay, so The Adventure of the Cardboard Box. I said I had some info on this one, and I do. Um, It was not published in the first British edition of the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, but it was published in the American edition, though it was quickly removed because of its controversial subject matter. We've already touched upon that. The story was later published again in American editions of His Last bow, which is why you and I were at different intervals with this. But let the record show that from now on... We are reading these stories in the chronological order they were written, not the way that publications or compilations have arranged them. We cool with that?
1: We're cool with that.
0: All right, great. Um, so, moving on. Yeah. When. <clears throat> sorry, clear my throat. Ready to
2: pair.
0: When the. Paired. There we go. When the cardboard box was removed from publication, Conan Doyle moved a passage from it that showed I don't know if you came across this in your own reading but he moved a passage from it um, that showed this mind reading that Holmes does of Watson at the very beginning to a different story called The Adventure of the Resident Patient and he later then moves it back it's very strange the way that this this excerpt comes like a part of the story was cut out and then was returned to the story and then another part was cut out and left out uh, Well, I guess we'll talk about that when we, when we talk about the investigation Interesting. yeah Uh, Anyway, some critics believe that this story was a really risky one to write for Conan Doyle, given the subject nature of adultery and murder, it was left out of reprints for different intervals of time, meeting most censorship in the USA, where a first edition of the memoirs carried the story without knowledge of the severity of public opinion in the UK, forcing to omit it for upcoming editions. Hence, a first American edition of the memoirs is a very valuable thing. If you can find one over there, buddy, at a flea sale, pick one up, because the first edition contains the story, whereas all the subsequent ones does not. Oh. Ah, yeah, That's pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> despite trawling, as I said earlier, trawling the depths of the internet, uh, short of paying for academic journals and microfilm, I really couldn't find, man. I couldn't find contemporary literary criticism for for this story, existing really from when it first appeared in the Strand. Like seriously, I could find next to nothing without breaking the bank. So it's surprising how crazy. It's, it's surprising to me how crazy that is, given the Victorians' interest in the high celebrity. You know, if if Doyle and Holmes were as high celebrity as you know the selling and publication of Strand seems to seems to suggest. And the money he was making would seem to suggest Then, you'd think there would be some free material still existing out there that would have seeped into our media concerning this story, but no, I couldn't find any. But what I did find is a 2009 New York Times article which deals with the memoirs broadly, and in it, this is what Lisa Sanders writes about Holmes and his behavior in this and the story we read earlier and the ones we're going to read furthermore. It says this, which I found was cool because we were talking about Asperger's syndrome. He has symptoms of Asperger syndrome. He appears peers oblivious to the rhythms and courtesies of normal social intercourse. He doesn't converse so much as he does lecture. His interests and knowledge are deep but narrow. He's strangely cold-blooded. Perhaps as a consequence, he's also alone in the world. He has no friends other than the extremely tolerant Watson, a brother, even stranger and more isolated than he is his only family. Was Conan Doyle presenting some sort of genetically transmitted personality disorder or mental illness that he'd observed? Or was Sherlock Holmes merely an interesting character created from such scratch?
1: Huh, interesting. And if you think about it, the modern interpretations of Sherlock Holmes, I mean, the one that Benedict Cumberbatch does is definitely someone on, on the spectrum for sure.
0: Totally, yeah. And we've talked about that before, and we will talk about it again. There's definitely evidence in the source material for that reading. In terms of good Goodreads, um, which this time around was a feckless endeavor, let me tell you. But nevertheless... Jason offers these words of wisdom. Not much of a mystery. Two stars. Cindy, Cindy <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I offers that this. One. I think I read this years ago. Three stars. <laughs> Pen and Paper fifty two writes, "It's a totally enjoyable book minus the earlobes thing." But then again, perhaps that's me. Or any cutout body part makes me cringe. Three stars. And someone just named Z says this, <laughs> my favorite of all. <clears throat> Short story, the one with two human ears mailed to a woman, whose ears? Who sent them? Three stars. <laughs>
1: I'm intrigued. I don't know about you, but yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, did you come across one that you wanted to you <laughs> wanted to share?
1: Well, the two sound bites from one of the reviews. The review was a bit long-winded, but the best two lines i got from it was this is this has been perhaps the most delightful short story yet in the series and then a wonderful little story
2: (laughs) Go, go what's
1: that read that again this has been perhaps the most delightful short story yet in the series a wonderful little story was his concluding statement oh gosh right
0: see these aren't reviews right this is the trouble like this is just twitter
1: it is. It is 100% Twitter. It's actually not even Twitter. It's Twaddle. Twaddle, exactly. New app. Another one it here twaddle. is, it's a good reminder to maintain distance from people who eagerly tear down others as a regular part of their speech. Mm. Referring, to, I guess, to Sarah Cushing there. Then you have so. also a love story gone horribly wrong. I feel for Browner. He was the real victim here. So there's like a bunch of people who see Sarah Cushing as the villain and not Browner, which is interesting. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, quite. I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that, but we'll get into it. Um, yeah, so d- do you want to get into it? you just want to
1: fly right through? Let's,
0: let's, yeah. What are we waiting for, man? I feel like we're hesitating too much today. We know what we're doing. Let's just fly into let's, this just, one. Let's
1: just do it. Uh, let's uh, get into, the, uh, into your outline there, my friend.
0: Alright, so the Adventure of the Cardboard box. As the late summer heat suffocates the great city of London, Watson and Holmes seek refuge inside the blind, drawn room of their Baker Street man cave. Curled on the sofa, Holmes plays at telepathy while Watson weathers the 90 degree heat with the metal of an experienced soldier. Holmes has been cordially invited by Inspector Lestrade to weigh in on a curious case that is puzzling Scotland Yard and directs Watson's attention to a small paragraph in the paper outlining the details. It would appear that Miss Sarah Cushing of Croydon was recently made victim of a horrible practical joke when, upon checking her mail, she discovered a neat little cardboard box addressed to an S. Cushing containing two human ears, one male and one female. Police believe that the package was sent from Belfast by ex-lodgers of Miss Cushing, medical students who she had turfed out for their rowdy frat parties and keggers back in the day. After changing Mm -hmm. costumes, the dynamic duo hire a cab and brave the heat to visit Lestrade at the scene of the prank. Packed in coarse salt and frayed at the edges, Holmes is quick to observe the roughness of the packaged ears. He immediately dismisses the likelihood of it coming from Cushing's previous medical student lodgers, sensing that their accuracy with surgical equipment would have made a cleaner job of the cut. Moreover, a spelling mistake and the unique knot tied in securing the box encourages Holmes to suppose that it was sent by an uneducated sailor, or at least someone with knowledge of rigging and ropes. His spidey sense tells him right off that this is less a sick, youthful prank and more serious crime, likely a double murder. He speaks mm. with Susan, who by now was fed up with questions and police presence in her home. Nevertheless, she soon comes around to Holmes and his charms. Watson observes of her that, quote, Like most people who lead a lonely life, she was very shy at first, but ended by becoming extremely communicative. Miss Cushing gives Holmes pretty much all the detail he needs to work out the mystery. Most telling are the troublesome details of marriage between James Browner and Susan's sister, Mary, and the meddlesome behavior of the other sister, Sarah. After a quick cable to Liverpool and a house call to Sarah Cushing, Susan's brain-fevering sister, Holmes and Watson power up in the pub over a bottle of claret and a pleasant little lunch where they talk of violins and the great Paganini. So quick was his absorption and computation of information that he tells Lestrade at the station he'd prefer to be left out of dispatches because this case wasn't really difficult enough for him to be complimented. Adding insult to injury, A gesture of some pleasure for our boy. He hands the disillusioned inspector one of his cards with the culprit's name scribbled on it, but instructs him that he won't be able to get an arrest until the next evening. Holmes later confesses to Watson that the case was an easy one because it depended on, quote, backward reasoning, and it wasn't complicated by concurrent twists or future evidence. Doyle then offers the trusty ventriloquist's performance so that Watson, we, the reader, can be told how this chain of backward reasoning led to his certainty of James Browner being the murderer and of the two ears belonging to Jim's adulterous wife and lover. His suspicions and resourcefulness are confirmed when a letter from Lestrade fills in the rest of the blanks. Upon its revival into, arrival into dock, the SS Mayday was boarded by police and Sailor Jim did nothing to resist questioning on arrest. In fact, He handed out his arms in supplication and confessed in a lengthy detail the story of his alcoholism, revenge, and murder. We learn from Browner's verbatim statement that it all started as the story of three sisters, kind of like the Chekhov play, but instead of a climactic duel over a woman, there's bludgeoning in a boat born out of jealousy and rage. You see, after marrying his true love Mary, in all Liverpool there was no better woman, he states, her sister Sarah came to visit and started to play old play vile temptress upon his dutiful sailor's heart, and one fateful afternoon when his wife was away. Browner shunned Sarah's advances, and though she brushed it off casually, she'd never truly get over the rejection and she began plotting to take revenge on him, or perhaps to turn him towards her, twistedly, by getting Mary's eyes to turn elsewhere. By introducing her to one Alec Fairbairn, a dashing, swaggering chap who made friends wherever he went, Sarah orchestrated an adulterous affair that soon had Browner chasing his wife and her secrets around when he returned home from sea instead of bumping uglies between the sails like good reuniting couples. Before long, Mary was seeing Alec regularly and the last embers of love between her and Jim had gone. Sarah's plan had worked. Well, sort of. In a portentous argument set to poach the white elephant out of the room, Browner fiercely promised Sarah that he would send her one of Fairbairn's ears if he ever showed up at his house in pursuit of his wife. The marriage is reclaimed, resignedly, and a new status quo of austerity is wedged into their home. Frightened by the threats against her by Browner, meddlesome Sarah eventually moved back down to London, having failed to make a living in Liverpool, hosting sailors in her own domicile. Now, Conan Doyle doesn't state outright that she was a whore, but he sure does imply it through her seductress's blueprint and fiery appetite. How else, I submit for your consideration, does a woman host sailors? Anyway, back in the capital... Sarah stayed for a time with her sister Susan. True to his word, when he rushed home some weeks later to surprise his wife with 12 hours of unexpected shore leave, a stupid, pitiable move for a man who knows that his wife is unfaithful, yet one which nevertheless lets us see his love, she isn't there. Doesn't take him long to discover her at the side of Alec Fairbank. The red mist falls, and with heavy club in hand, he follows the unsuspecting couple to New Brighton, a seaside resort at the mouth of the Mersey just outside Liverpool. There, Browner follows them through the fairground and onto the beach, where they hire a boat. He does the same, and much more skilled in skiffs than they are, he soon overtakes them. Under the blanketed security of a hazy mist, he proceeds to board their paltry vessel and beats them to death. He cuts free his barbaric prizes before sending the two bodies to Davy Jones's locker in what is definitely the most unsettling crime of passion that we have yet received in a home story. Sailor Jim cleans himself up and returns to work aboard the Mayday before posting the ears later from Belfast. This is how the gruesome parcel, addressed only with an S, makes its ambiguous appearance in Croydon and how Holmes knows to tell Lestrade that he won't be able to get Browner on the murder until his boat comes back to dock. Though successful in solving the mystery of the cardboard box, Holmes is nevertheless perplexed. He asks Watson, quote, what object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear, end quote. The disorder of passionate crime doesn't really jive with his fundamentalist view of logical behavior, even for a criminal. He just can't accept red mist or rage as a motive. The whole affair is repugnant to the sanctity of marriage and law in equal measure. And for all his objective claims and calculating insights, Holmes lacks the existential, Herzogian view of humans as chaotic, passionate beings. The story ends curiously with Sherlock reaching out to his partner for understanding in a scene not dissimilar to so many Captain Kirk moments. If only Watson were a more suitable Spock, he might have gained some closure. (laughs) Nice. There you go. And I would now like you to start talking about your feelings of the story. We've already lit our pipes.
1: Our pipes. Are, oh, that's right. I was going to take another another puff here, and uh, let's uh, dive in. So, let's look at the uh, the pipes. We got our principles, our investigation, our perpetrator, our environment, and our supporting cast. So, the principles. I found Watson was kind of clueless in this story. <laughs> it's so much that Holmes doesn't even have to talk to him; he just has to read his mind instead. <laughs> Uh, seriously, um, his his kind of cavalier approach to the case was a bit disconcerting, as to me enjoying his character, but I found he did, have, did kind of have an about-face when he realized, you know, these ears that he's finding, he goes very grave, you know, when he realizes that a terrible crime has been committed. So that kind of sold me on his mannerisms. At the same time, the way that he approached the case and then he wanted to dismiss it uh, immediately after he knew there was a murder committed, uh, it, it could be seen as the kind of like a symptom of autism, I suppose, not having that emotional connection. It could also be sort of some sort of like a kind of ingrained defense mechanism against such atrocity so that he just writes it off, you know. Um, There is a kind of, I think, a argument for that. That's Um,
0: interesting. I hadn't thought of that.
1: Yeah, and then again, he was disturbed by Browning's confession and the actions that people do. But was he also, there's a good ambiguity to the sense, was he concerned with the actions of what Browning did and he was disturbed by it in that way or he was horrified by it or was he more or less just didn't understand it because it was just more human emotion, right? That red mist you're talking about.
2: Hmm.
1: So I, I give the dynamic duo because I found Holmes was kind of interesting and in, in, in this storyline and I, I, give it a, I give it a solid four, maybe a little generous, but in Holmes I found presented an interesting version of himself in this one so i I give it a four
0: he did and i gave it a four as well i agree 100 percent with what you said about watson particularly noticeable after the silver blaze reading this story uh, as i did in sequence i know you were kind of a couple behind because you went the other way but um i i found that yeah like watson was so sharp and he was so involved last time here he's just kind of it's almost like he's disgusted by the 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 murder of it and he he never says he is but you know it's it it would be an explanation at least like he's shocked um by the murder and so he he kind of takes a back foot and just follows his pal around yes i don't i don't know if that if that's entirely fair but that that's how it felt anyway um <laughs> Holmes, particularly at the end, is is really curious. I did like the fact that we got another violin chat and another moment of him switching off his mind because, as far as he was concerned, he was done until the apprehension of the criminal. I like that. Cause but just, again, you
1: got that Im- that ambiguity though. Like, was he just turned it off because he was done, or was he going into Paganini and high culture and violin music because that's how he escapes from these disturbing things? Like, there's, I think there's a, there's an argument for that. There is a a possibility you know of a gray area of whether or not is he just you know high functioning Mm. or or just cold or or is he simply just trying to repress you know these uh these disturbing feelings Mm -hmm.
0: that's a good observation i i I don't know it's a question for it's a question for the critics it's a question for the readers i think he's not bothered by this myself personally um Mm. I think Watson is, and maybe he senses something in his friend that makes him go have a bottle of wine and a nice lunch, but he That's does a possibility he, too. He doesn't want anything to do with this case. He doesn't want his name mentioned in dispatch, right? So of course you could also say that he doesn't want a reminder of it if you wanted to look at it from the position that you're arguing. But anyway, I went for four with this. But I found that the ending was really interesting of this story. I liked I liked the I like the complexity that we get of Holmes's character here and his his frustrations in trying to understand people. Um, this is a great great conversation they're having at the end. Um, it ends it ends very quickly, but after the big info dropped uh, verbatim uh, statement by Browner when he's arrested, we have we have him asking, you know. What object is served by the circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end, or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? There's a great standing, perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. And I' found this really cool in contempor- or sorry, in modern context as well, where you've got things like chaos theory that and I don't know you know I apologize for my ignorance, I don't know the root or the history of chaos theory, but I do certainly know that uh, understanding the world in terms of disorder has become far more fashionable. And uh, philosophically, you got directors like Werner Herzog, which is why I referenced him in my outline, who do a lot of their work mm. around chaos mm. and and like um, equilibrium mm. and stuff like that. Holmes seems incapable of understanding this case And it obviously irks him. It really bothers him that, okay, yeah, he solved the case, but he didn't solve the reason. And I think that kind of, like, the reason of passion, he doesn't understand how it couldn't have ended differently. Like, I don't think he's crying for the wasted life necessarily, or he's trying to distance himself from it. But he wants to know why Browner had the red mist. He wants to know why there was the rage, the chaos, the disorder in his personality that led him to drinking, why there was a lack of control. Like, he's disgusted by it as much as he's drawn to it. And I think that that's a real complication for him. And it's a complexity perhaps we have seen before, but it's never been as clearly stated out in a rhetorical question the way we get it here.
1: And you notice too is that when he says, "What is the meaning of it, Watson?" the next line is, "Said home, home solemnly, mm-hmm. solemnly, as he down the paper." So it's not an act of frustration or anger that he responds to it, or any kind of like spastic response. He just lays the paper down and he just kind of just like shakes his head, like mm-hmm. it. it's bothering him. You know what I mean? Anyway, it's I bothering like that. him, but not I in the that sense cool. maybe that we think it's... Yeah,
0: fair enough. Yeah. I went, I went for a four with perpetrators. I thought they were good, even though the uh, investigative side of, or sorry, of principles, even though the investigative side of them, it was kind of lame. But I still thought they were interesting in this, uh, Holmes more than Watson. Yes. So, yeah, I went for a
1: four. Which that's I why think, I gave it a four.
0: Yeah, but as you pointed out, that's, it's still a generous mark for a story where Watson has very little agency.
1: In the, if the category is called principles and we're dealing with their dynamic That's duo, right. yes, yeah. it is.
0: Right. Anyway, let's move on to investigation. Uh, what did you think of this story stylistically, structurally? Did you like – I mean I feel like we've read this story before in terms of its formula. We get the big statement like we got at the end um, of in Scarlet, We get, which kind of wraps everything up and explains it all. And we get Holmes working heavily at the beginning but not really anywhere else. I feel like the structure of this story – Uh, is kind of cardboard cutout, if you pardon the pun.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like you go back to the sign of four, right? It relied on the confession in the end to put everything together. Uh, Yes, It was a good setup, you know, with Susan Cushing, the ominous box, I guess, kind of, uh, the ominous box, it just kind of did that, kind of reminded me of two things. Historically, it reminded me of, like, the kidney that Jack the Ripper sent Scotland Yard at the time, Mm. which would have been around that time too, right? Yeah. then you also have, you know, of course, David Fincher's Seven, the famous head in the box scene, uh, which that's, it reminded me of the stuff of modern thrillers in that way. And of course, even Poe is referenced. Um, I think his observations with the Sailor's Knot, how Doyle writes his interest in the case in a cryptic, alluring fashion, it propels the narrative uh, so that even if we're confused at these inquiries he was making, we, like Watson, are not utterly lost when the confession from Browner explains everything in the end. But again, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, we've seen this type of story before. The, the, the setup, the mystery, the kind of the the, the, the little dro- droplets of cues along the way, and then, of course, you get sort of the... or droppings of cue, of clues along the way would be a better way to phrase it. And then, of course, we have the confession. And I think the confession was a lot... Uh, I liked this confession by Browner more than I liked, for example... Jonathan Smalls' confession at the end of Sign of Four, because there was something, even though what Browner did was terrible, there was something very honest and human about how it was presented. And I found that refreshing. So I'm going to give the investigation a a, a full number four on this one.
0: Yeah, um, I... Well, I'll say, say that in, I'll give you my score in a minute, but I agree with what you're saying. There is a more human element to this confession, although it's a little bit smaller than what we got in the novel. And I think part of that reason is because there's a remorse and there's there's, um, there's yes. there is a guilt here. Whereas before there was just a sense of relief, like okay, I've done my job. Now my heart can explode in my chest and I'll die. Um, in this one, he knows that he's going to be hung or he's going to be imprisoned, and he's remorseful because he knows what he's done is wrong, but he's a man who's not just on a simple mission of revenge. He's a man who's on a mission of revenge while dealing with alcoholism, while dealing with uh, this feeling that he is deserved something, not just like a big rescue Superman mission. You know, there's something more complex here in the statement that, that warrants a more human environmental response. I agree with everything you said there about that. So the investigation i did feel a little bit differently than you um not majorly though it has to be said so i liked reading the formula again even though it was a formula and i knew what we were going to get i liked it that holmes had his little moment of no don't even bother this i love the the lestat moments here uh i like the lestat lestrade moments <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, much like I enjoyed the Lestrade moments in uh, I don't remember what story. Oh yes, I do remember what story it is. the The one with Hattie Doran, um, the Noble Bachelor. No, I liked bachelor. the Lestrade moments there as well. I found them quite acute, and I love the you know the little expressions that Lestrade has where he thinks he's he's won the lottery and getting one over, and he doesn't really. And then when Holmes. Holmes gives him the his own business card with the name of the killer on the back. I thought that was kind of cool. I know that these guys have got a long-standing relationship, but it's always nice to see them duke it out. Um, so that part of the investigation was, was, was cool. I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, in terms of my scoring, um, I went for a four on investigation as well. Structurally, you know, it is a lot like what we what we've seen before. But
1: it's sound.
0: Yeah, it's sound. A lot of info drop at the end, but it is sound, and it's a formula that works for me, so I went for a four as well. I enjoyed this story, reading it. I I was engaged.
1: In the way of how they say, you know, a a story is only as good as its villain, and I think that really pertains to this story. Even though I gave the perpetrator 3.5, you know, he is a POS, you know, despite his protestations of being led this way by Sarah, who is a piece of work herself. Mm Mm-hmm. maybe she saw something in him that he had not yet yet to discover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, but even though of course she does have her own nefarious m- motivations, what's going on. I still don't think that her or her sister deserve that fate in that way. Right. No one does. Um, he is a bit of a trope. I think nowadays, maybe not as much as he was back then, but definitely nowadays. Uh, okay. I like that he controlled. He was controlled by his passion and he wasn't really evil and he was also prepared to accept the consequences of his actions regardless of what would happen. And he wasn't a mustache trillion villain and I think that's what made him different than most of them.
0: Cool. So you went three three 3.5 for perpetrators? I did. Um, I'm surprised myself with this one. I went 4.5 for perpetrator. I really like 4.5. I really liked... Jim Browner. I thought he was interesting. I thought he was complex. And I really liked Sarah Cushing. I thought her um, her boldness and her selfishness really came out on the page. I thought that the these guys were two very humans suffering from human appetites and expressing those appetites in the best ways that they could. And yeah, criminal. Sarah wasn't a criminal. She was just a bitch and a, a really nasty piece of sexualized work uh, I thought that was I thought that was cool and I liked the terrible of, sister yeah but it, it makes you think of these stepsisters of Cinderella and fairy tale lore and the nasty there's always a nasty one you know that 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 sticks her head out and, yeah. and makes trouble and I thought that yeah okay trope you used the word a few moments ago a bit of a trope I'd say she's more of the trope maybe than he is uh his the femme fatale. We're good yeah the femme fatale but you know what? I went 4.5 because I didn't feel like I felt like this was a human story. Um it was disgusting and I don't I'm not going to argue that it was perfect like it's it it's a pretty heated reaction to cut off someone's ears to do a double murder and then to just send them back. I mean, it's funny if he had such passion for her, it, it, like it's like his passion of revenge was more important than his passion of winning back his wife and that made me think that maybe he really did have passion for this girl but couldn't express it in a marriage or sexualized way and so instead the only way he could show sarah that he wished like he felt trapped like a married man he wanted to do the right thing but he couldn't and so instead of you know trying to win back his wife because he didn't actually have that love he just felt like he needed to show that love he instead emphasized the passion in revenge because that truly was where he wanted to go i think there's some really cool psychological stuff going on in the story i think yeah you know what that's that's just how I read it
1: you're you're really shining sh- sh- a light and revealing a lot of more you know gold than you know that I kind of found earlier now that I think about it and uh, I maybe mean, because I just read the story yesterday and I'd have a chance to kind of digest it the way that you did um I think I'm actually going to go to a four on on this case here
0: well i'm not I'm not trying to change your opinion or well no you know.
1: but you but you have and you not not out of your own you know persistence to but more out of just your Doing um, this, you know, expressing your viewpoint on these matters in a way that I just, I, I just couldn't have time to, I, I suppose, uh, as I said, di- digest only after reading it yesterday evening.
0: All right. Fair enough. That's cool. Um, well, what did you think then on your fresh read of the environments here?
1: The environments, I think, were fairly standard. Uh, I gave it a 3.5 when it comes to the environments. The fairground and the uh, and the stuff at sea was interesting, but it wasn't really well described. And it was a typical kind of thing that we've seen before, you know, where uh, uh, Miss uh, Cushing lived and whatnot. So I don't really see any changes in locale that really stood out like it would in Silver Blaze, for example. So I, I just gave it 3.5.
0: Okay. I How about went, you? I went for a 4 here. Um, okay. I went for a 4. I agree with what you're saying. Sorry, I agree with what you're saying, but um, I I do disagree a little bit. I felt like, given the oppressive heat, I felt like environmentally that was really cool too. And um, the beginning of the story, Holmes and Watson in the room, I felt that was really, really good. I'm just going to read this a little bit. Uh, It was a blazing hot day in August. Baker Street was like an oven, and the glare of the sunlight upon the yellow brickwork of the houses across the road was painful to the eye. It was hard to believe that these were the same walls which loomed so gloomily through the fogs of winter. Our blinds were half-drawn, and Holmes carried, uh, lay curled upon the sofa, reading and re-reading a letter which he had received by the morning post. For myself, my term of service in India had trained me to stand heat better than cold, and a thermometer was at 90 was no big hardship. But the morning paper was uninteresting, Parliament had risen, everyone was out of town, and I yearned for the glades of the new forest or the, sing- or the shingle of South Sea, a depleted bank account had caused me to postpone my holiday, and as to my companion, neither the country nor the sea presented the slightest attraction to him. He loved to lie in the very center of five millions of people, with his filaments stretching out and running through them, responsive to every little rumor or suspicion or of unsolved crime. Appreciation of nature found no place among his many gifts, and his only change was when he turned his mind from the evildoer of the town to track down his brother of the country. I like that description not just of the heat and the sunshine because that in itself is just that heat and sunshine, but of Holmes sitting and basking in this environment like a doctor octopus almost just you know trying to get his tentacles on something to inspire and motivate and encourage his activity and mm. I think that in terms of the settings, you know while you're right in what you say that it's standard and we don't stay in any one place terribly long, we do get um we do get a couple of different settings. You know, we get the Merseyside, uh, we get Liverpool, we get Croydon, we get the boats in the fairground, and of course the the bay itself, in which the murder takes place. I thought that it was cool to jump around here, even if it was coming to us in an info drop, and I thought that I thought it was cool to jump around. So I enjoyed it as much as I almost as much as I did in the last story, which I gave a four, and I thought it would be a little bit. Um, discourteous of me not to do the same for this one so i went for a four
1: all right well, i'll Plus, stay with my 3.5 but yeah um, that's,
0: that's cool but I, I still also think it's it's funny to imagine these um these gentlemen just kind of sitting around in in the heated streets of croydon uh although admittedly it's a little cooler there than it was in um in holmes's apartment but just kind of looking at this cardboard box and sitting out in the sun and you know you get the the sun casting its sweat on everyone's brow and um, the, they're just picking through a box full of human ears. like I think the environment's it's very ironic and it's very it's ironic because the the murder is is so grotesque and I just think it's cool. I, I think it's interesting, but maybe that would
1: have worked anywhere. You it's know? a different contrast and you know you know how I mentioned you know like the head in the box with seven and whatnot yeah if you remember the last scene of seven where the big reveal where the head in the box occurs. It actually happens. The rest of the scenes of the murders in that film you see are in dark, gr- grungy yeah. kind of places, right? But if you recall, that whole scene, the whole reveal at the end, is in the middle of a field in the bright, di- in the mm-hmm. you know, with a bright sky and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that contrast I think between the, I guess, the, a, a cheerful, uh, relaxed atmosphere. Versus that of of what the of what is there you know the contents of the, the box the the, gr- the grotesquerie the brutality um, and yet nature is kind of uh, what's the word uh, oblivious to what na- you know what man does you know it mm-hmm. just does its thing all the time regardless and in the light of day you see the most terrible things you know what I mean
0: yeah I know exactly what you mean and earlier you cited the uh the speckled band, and and you know the box with the snake in the dark room. That's where you would expect to see two human ears hanging out. But instead, we get them here in the summer sun, um, just kind of late summer sun of August. Just these guys sitting outside this neighborhood, just looking at a box of human. It's very weird. It's it it's, it's a disconnect. You know it it um, it doesn't can, it doesn't follow from what you would expect from the environment. But it works. So the that, irony that, that's there. that's yeah. the great part about it. Yeah, it works. I liked it. I went uh, I went for a four, but. You know, it's still not top marks or anything because, like you said, they're they are sketches. At the end of the day, they're not really fully fully come to life in their own steam. But it's good. What about the secondary characters here in the cast?
1: The supporting cast. I gave it a four. I found all the characters very interesting in this, and I think this goes into the perpetrator part of me changing the mark too because I did have a pretty good score for the supporting cast and uh, all the Cushing's the Cushing sisters were fleshed out as best as they could. You know, in a short story. Uh, limit and then you know and 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 again we have our, our perpetrator and lestrade you know was was decent in this story too very much like he was kind of like a uh, a very good rival for holmes as he was in the noble bachelor uh i feel that um all the characters they played their part in the story well and they they weren't sketched too too thinly that you know you didn't get a sense of them and you understood them. You understood their motivations. You know, like they pulled. They, they, they their tale like pulled you into into the story. In my opinion,
0: yep, I agree with you. But I went for three point five here on this one. Hmm. Uh, I went just a half shade lower than you because I liked Lestrade. I liked the the Cushing sisters. Um, f- I felt that there was something kind of conveniently uh, and left out with this whole. Uh, what's his name? Fairbank? No. What's his name? The guy who. Oh, oh
1: shovel- Alec Fairbairn. Yeah.
0: Fairbairn. Yeah. Like, yeah, he was just sho- shovel nosed in there, and or shoehorned in there. Sorry. Um, the reason I. The other shovel- man. Yeah, the reason I just said shovel nosed is because I was reading um, Hemingway's *Old Man and the Sea*. I'm studying that with the kids, and there's a shovel-nosed huh. shark that shows up at the end of it, and that's. I meant to say shoehorned. He's just kind of shoe shoehorned in there, and, as as an important um, ingredient to get Mary what she wants. And I just felt like this guy—he's pretty stupid. Like, and you know, where's his, where's his morality in any of this? Um I mean, there are millions of other guys that are cheating on, or helping women cheat. But you know, this maybe this guy, he could have
1: used maybe a, like an introduction beforehand, or some other mention just mm-hmm. before. You know, like well, he was like Sarah's he, best friend or something like that. Or
0: well, we are told that he was a man about town, and everybody enjoyed him and appreciated him, and even Jim browner you know appreciated his company at the beginning we, we get that idea but i mean at what point like you know that the girl you're boning is married to a sailor who's hard as fuck and drinks a lot and is going to beat the shit out of anything he wants to why would you maintain a relationship in, under his own roof like it just seems kind of stupid to me so yeah uh, but that kind I, of
1: behavior as a whole is pretty stupid if you think about it
0: it is but again that just draws draws out their human foibles, I guess. And, and they're, you know, the, the body wants what the body wants, right? Not the heart, I guess. Yes. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I went 3.5 on that for supporting cast, which brings my total score to 8.20. I'm at 20 on that one. And you are at a 19.5. So we are close <laughs> today so far.
1: We are. We are close. Well, now let's see how we fare together on in comparison. In comparison with uh, the adventure of the Yellow Face.
0: Well, we're not there yet, Josh. This is uh, musical interlude time. Remember, we need to mm. select. We need to select our music, and uh, once again, I'm offering you two choices, two cardboard boxes, if you will, <laughs> um, available for choosing. Would you like what's in box number one, or would you like what's in box number two?
1: Box number two.
0: Or would you like? what's in box number three. There is a box number three here. Wow. Uh, Sorry, I just forgot that there was until I looked at my playlist. I had to scroll down the screen to see.
1: Well, in that case then, because I was denied the first time, box number three it is. Box number three. Okay,
0: um, let me tell you about the two that you didn't get. Box number one was another track from a James Bond film, another John Barry score, a track entitled Murder at the Fair, which is quite apt from The Living Daylights. Right. The other track was Darby's Castle by Chris Christopherson, uh, a song about infidelity and a man's life tumbling
1: down. Did the the fairground kind of stalking of of, uh, Browner remind you of like uh, Strangers on a Train?
0: A little bit maybe. I can see the connection, yeah.
1: When he's stalking uh, the guy's wife or whatever? A
2: little
0: bit yeah a little bit yeah so those are the two that you didn't pick you went for door number three am I correct I did right well door number three another song about infidelity though a little jumpier is um, this one part time lover by Stevie Wonder oh boy this comes to represent Alex and Mary a little bit better than it does Jim Brower
1: Before Alex turned and he'll be, uh, uh, wait, that's not perfect, that's
0: I think you get the idea, but I let that run on a bit. I let that run on a bit because it is just a great tune.
1: It is a good tune.
0: So, yeah, part-time lover, Stevie Wonder. Um, Perhaps not the finest representation of the adventure of the cardboard box, but (laughs) nevertheless, uh, a good one in some plot points, I suppose. If you can make it work, you can make it work, my friend. And we did make it work. And really, do we need an excuse Uh, after listening to a rather contemplative eerie, mysterious, and investigatory track from A View to a Kill for Silver Blaze. Do we really need an excuse, I ask you, BFG, to bring out a bursted pop song like that? No, we don't. Indeed. So, on we go. The Yellow Face.
1: Yeah, The Yellow Face. A.K.A. How do you spell assume? Answer. <laughs> don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Quite right. So, Grant Munro... Has a problem. He doesn't trust his wife. Oh boy, Holmes is bored already. <laughs> Especially after how the page boy explained how Mister Monroe carried on while impatiently waiting for Holmes and Watson to return from their walk in the park. After the dynamic duo had settled in, Monroe returned, and he doesn't even have to say his name because Holmes just knows. Knows, or he just he just sees his name on the brim of his hat. Holmes does those kind of things. Uh, Monroe's wife, Effie, uh, she's a returned Englander from America, uh, Atlanta, actually. She married a lawyer named Hebron until he and their ch- child contracted yellow fever. Bereft, she returned to England and soothed her sad heart by marrying Mr. Monroe. And that should be that. But as we will see, that in regard to the former marriage, we are leaving out a, a few details like a lot. A lot. <laughs> but we'll get to that. All seems to be well. The Monroe's have a nice villa in Norbury. Everybody is happy, but of course, nothing ruins our neighborhood like some sketchy new neighbors coming in. You know, they don't mow the lawn with the long grasses. There's a mistreated (laughs) angry dog who barks all night. There's bottles everywhere. Uh, Everyone's having a row in that single house or even resurrected mulatto babies. You know, the usual. There is a cottage down the lane that is soon inhabited by an angry Scotswoman, and every once and a while, Mr. Monroe would see a yellow face appearing in the window. A scary yellow face. Is it Sherlock Holmes or a true detective? Things are getting weird, and even weirder when Effie wakes up in the middle of the night and gets some air, quote-unquote, or asks for money, or and tells her husband not to ask. Or visits the creepy cottage every now and then and refuses to explain to her husband what is going on, only ensuring him... All will be well and made plain in the time. Sidebar, is this Holmes' ideal woman or what? Sorry, Irene Adler, fangirls. Sorry, Holmes, Watson, fan fic- fiction bloggers. But Effie is the only one for our Sherlock. No one could be as withholding uh, like him as she.
0: That's interesting. Just, I'm going to interject here because I came across a couple of different attitudes uh, that argue this – Character of Effie actually did have an effect on Holmes. Do you think that she does? Uh,
1: they never they never really interacted. To be honest with you, <laughs> I
0: know that's why I found it really weird. But a couple <laughs> of, like there are scholars. Uh, I I use the word scholars loosely because that's how they're described in my notes. But um, yeah, like there are there are you know fans and enthusiasts and academics who do argue that yeah you know Holmes Holmes probably could like you're saying be shack up with someone like this.
1: <laughs> he, I just love the fact how you disclose all this information from me and tell me years later or let me figure it out that's hot man <laughs>
0: yeah yeah
1: as the character in uh, the Development said you get off from being withholding <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
1: so naturally Holmes assumes the yellow face is evil the invalid not dead Mr. Hebron who is extorting Effie somehow I believe Holmes' deductive reasoning goes like this Mr. Hebron plus yellow fever equals yellow face. <laughs> Makes sense, right? But nope, <laughs> sure, Monroe sure, gets, yeah. ho- gets Holmes and Watson down in Norbury to assess the situation, and boy, do they! Not concerned with the law or anything, the trio force their way into the cottage. Monroe grapples with the Scots Haradan while Holmes goes for the bedroom with the, win- with the window, the window with the yellow face. And there's a little girl in the room with a yellow mask to hide her actual black face. She's smiling. Holmes and Watson and Monroe stand around for ten minutes of awkward silence. Yes, <laughs> ten minutes according to the text. Like complete assholes. <laughs> like they stand in the room for ten minutes. And that's what it literally says. So can just imagine, like, the little kid sitting there, smiling, what going, and then been angry, Effie looking awkward. Holmes looking awkward. It's just total cringe moment. Do you see? Anyway. I don't know
0: if your book. I don't know if your book has it, but do you see Sidney Paget's uh, illustration of that? No. Well, as you know, he illustrated for the Strand, and he gave Sherlock Holmes a lot of these. Anyway, the, the picture I've got is just is is really good because yeah, it does it captures the end of the story. But Holmes and Watson are kind of behind, um, are behind the, the couple. And Holmes is just kind of looking on like a grandfather might, like, at a church service, you know? Very weird.
1: (laughs) Anyways, it turns out Effie's daughter survived and she managed to get her overseas (laughs) all this time. Just because of the bigotry of the age, she was reluctant to tell her husband. Awkward, awkward situation. Yes, Sherlock, I understand how Norbury can trigger you of the fact that assume is spelled ass out of you and me.
0: Yep, that's it. (laughs) and And the characters are a bit of an ass here too, aren't they the two they they are
1: they're all assholes, <laughs>
0: they're all assholes apart from well, no, he's an asshole too. I was gonna say, um, yeah, it's like well, no, it's not i'll I'll get there well, I'll get there. I don't wanna say too much um about our about our victim if i if it's right to call him a victim of his of his wife's deception, but he's, <laughs> he's kind of like a winner at the end of it, isn't he,
1: yeah. Uh, for the per- perpetrators, well, before we get the per- actually no, before we get into the even the pipes, uh, let's go see what Goodreads has to say about this next publication in the Strand after the cardboard box.
0: Well, this is considered a rarity among the Sherlock Holmes stories because it involves Holmes acknowledging that he made mistakes along the way, and this is one that Watson includes in the stories, perhaps when you know his students would have called out for something else
1: well this one guy says it was an interesting mystery but a little too predictable i know with that
0: but uh, predictable i no way man i i didn't know what was up in that cottage i was thinking yeah okay thinking it was like
1: fu Manchu or something <laughs> yeah
0: exactly i was there, thinking okay. like that x-files episode um what is it what's it called not blood money the one where um Mulder and Scully are investigating the the Chinese um, gambling ring. What's that one called?
1: Oh, oh, Hell Money.
0: Hell Money. Hell Money. Yeah, I was think I, I was thinking anything from that to maybe this was the husband that was horribly disfigured or maybe this was like someone who had like I was thinking like Holmes, maybe this involved blackmail of some kind and that there was this um you know, evil part of her past that had kind of Followed up, but I wasn't expecting the ending. I, I didn't find it as predictable. I mean, I was not surprised when it was revealed as her daughter, but I didn't find it. I didn't find it predictable. Like that guy. What else? Does the so the same guy the that mentioned
1: uh, about uh, the cardboard box about how it was. Uh, he sympathized with uh, Mr. Browner. Uh, he says another Sherlock Holmes story I cherish so much, and this one has a strong moral value. This is not a crime story because there's no real crime in it. It's just a mystery story and a very cute one. I've no doubt this would have been a very special case for Sherlock as well. What he told Watson at the end story suggests that. Not really, no. Uh, No, I I don't
0: disagree that there's a moral story here uh, or that Conan Doyle's trying to offer up some forgiveness for the rampant racism of The Sign of Four There's sort of like an answer to that here. But he does it by having the character wear a mask that looks less black. So I don't know that it's entirely the right way to go about it. But yeah, you know, I'll I'll give him some credit for that.
1: One of the rare occasions where Holmes is wrong, but still a very happy ending.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, that's what we're told at
1: the very beginning.
0: That's exactly what's in the first paragraph of the story. I,
1: I know, eh? Here the idea of a case departing from the usual Sherlock formula is explored with more success than other Holmes stories I have read recently, such as The Five Orange Pips or The Adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. I haven't hit that one yet. As with those others, there is little of Holmes' usual sleuthing, but this one makes up for it with a sweet sentimental ending that is an interesting contrast to the intellectualness of the most Sherlock stories.
0: That's probably about the most articulate Goodreads response we've had in a couple of episodes.
1: I I think so. I think so.
0: Listen, let me ask you a question about um, this story as it opens. There's a paragraph where Watson steps out, almost breaks the fourth wall, and gives us this bit of exposition. Um, And it does just kind of come out of nowhere, but save for the occasional use of cocaine, he had no vices, and he only turned to the drug as a protest against the monotony of existence when cases were scanty and the papers uninteresting. Um... Okay fine like we have got that before in the past, but is this now meaning to suggest that he's not an addict because there were euphoric descriptions in the first two instances of his cocaine use that would suggest that he was more than just a conservative user and here it seems to lean towards the the side of of Holmes only once in a while experimenting with it do you see what I mean like the, the, what we're given here by Watson sounds a lot more um, acceptable than what we would probably expect, given, yes. what, given what we read. I don't know. that. Sorry, that didn't come out clearly, but all I'm trying to say is that Watson here it doesn't sound like he did earlier, where he was talking about Holmes's cocaine use, and I'm wondering if this is Doyle coming to recognize now, as the late Victorians were, that while socially acceptable in some manner, this isn't a good thing to be putting into your body.
1: Uh, yeah, like I think it got to the point where like uh, it wasn't just wasn't like snuff boxes back then. It, it, perhaps it was getting more and more maligned uh, in the late Victorian era, going into the twentieth century, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Hmm. I don't know. Or 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 Conan Doyle, from a medical background, probably knew the dangers of it more so than anybody when he wrote about it. That's also also key. Yeah, it is. And, and that... maybe he was worried And if you look at Scotland and stuff and. You know, not, you know, Edinburgh, where he grew up and whatnot. Maybe he he just knew that uh, new people who are probably were in bad straits because of it. And maybe he wanted to show that, you know, this this upper class kind of drug is will bring will bring you down in the end. Right. So maybe he wanted to get some awareness out there.
0: So are you arguing then that he's the progenitor of Trainspotting? (laughs) Very could be. He could be an inspiration for it, maybe. It gives me a completely different um, image of that opening scene to the film where you uh, and McGregor's characters running down Princess Street this could be Sherlock Holmes running after a high
1: it could be yes
0: oh no you're right I mean I I don't know I I, I just found, I just noticed it and it sounded different than
1: So the is earlier, Begbie Watson the in one. this
0: case I guess so yeah <laughs> it just uh, it just sounded different to the way cocaine came uh, in the earlier references it's like now he's He's more of an apologist for Holmes, you know.
1: Maybe, but. perhaps there was some bad, maybe because of the American audiences that he was, it was growing and growing and growing, and that, that that really liked his stories. Maybe there was some backlash against him being a cocaine user. Maybe it was worse in the states because it was mm. the it wasn't like cocaine and, and like even earlier then, like even the mob wouldn't touch drugs back then either. Too you know, like not until much much later on. Oh, so they may, maybe so they maybe thought it was like you know like the. "Quote unquote black man's drug," you know what I mean. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a good point. You also mentioned the... a few moments ago, uh, well, some time ago now, uh, this amber pipe or pipe with amber. Do you want to say anything about that? Here, I found this was interesting. This this scene between Watson and Holmes at the beginning, where we're getting Holmes building his profile, kind of with the, um, the with the left behind pipe being really revealing. Like we saw him do this with the hat in the blue carbuncle. And we're seeing him do something here with the pipe of this uh, this guy who was here to see him as a client, but had to, couldn't be bothered waiting, so said he'd come back.
1: Yeah, he kind of pieces them together as kind of like being like a merchant class, you know, not like not like blue collar, but merchant class with a bit of money on him, so that he could have like an amber mouthpiece and mm-hmm. and and from what I understand, I don't know if it was applied that there was a fly in the amber, but apparently, the, if if you have fly in the amber, it's, it's worth even more.
0: That's what he says, yeah. But then Holmes also says that um, that that in itself isn't indicative because there are a lot of people who deliberately put them deliberately put flies into the amber, and so it's not it's uh, to not kind to,
1: to kind of feign their
0: their mm-hmm. their value. That's right, yeah. Anyway, I, I just I thought this was a cool cool beginning.
1: Yeah, we've seen something similar before, like with the hat, as I say. But I think the it, hat and the cool. name was kind of it was kind of interesting. Like when you, when someone's really frustrated and upset, and then you know their name, why make them feel like I, on, out out of ease like that? You know, like I just found that whole thing uh, kind of stand out. So I guess now we're kind of going into the pipes. Now we're still we're still puffing away here. Mm-hmm. So looking at the principles, I was. Again, I find with the principles, I'm either between a three point five and a four most of the time. I'll, I, I say with a solid four in this case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Holmes, you know, like he had from the from the he he was alert and he and, and he was you know using the best of his abilities, but I think his own social uh, hindrances prevented him from seeing what was really going on here.
0: Okay, well. <clears throat> I went three point five here with the principles. I liked, uh, like I, I think, as you're saying, this is a story where Holmes gets it wrong, and he, sorry, like we were saying a few moments ago, this is a story that home where Holmes gets it wrong. But these neat things that I like about him looking at the pipe and all of that that we've seen before, this is included i think because holmes actually does very little in the story even though he gets it wrong he just makes an assumption travels out to the cottage and finds out that he's wrong and like you said has 10 awkward moments standing like a stooge while this little black girl is running around the room like it's it's just kind of weird and if we didn't get i ask you this if we didn't get this little conversation at the beginning about the pipe and about who is this guy and him sizing him up and all that through the evidence that's been left behind would he really have done a hell of a lot?
1: No, if you think about it, this story could have been done without Sherlock Holmes's help whatsoever. It kind of was, wasn't it? It was. But maybe, if I guess if you could add this to the investigative side, investigations, the story side of this, is that, and how it was developed was, Conan Doyle needed something in there to, I guess, show Sherlock at work. And by having... The, the scene with the pipe, having the scene with him, you know, reading his name off his hat and all that showed that he was firing on all cylinders, as I've said before, you know, in, in full investigative mode and being. But I think what Doyle is, is showing here with with with, the, with Holmes' character and in the story as well is that being such a narrow focus on one thing and, and and looking at all these details, you miss the bigger picture. And that's what I think is the moral of this story
0: interesting so missing the bigger picture
1: missing the bigger picture well and we only see
0: sorry go ahead finish up which
1: is ironic for Holmes because that's kind of what he's going for in the end but because he was thinking on in a much more just looking at the minutiae of everything and not seeing the human side of what's going on here it just seems to me that like even if with his great investigative capabilities one slight kind of missing detail on something, or not understanding of something can lead to a complete misunderstanding or or the wrong interpretation of events, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you went four for principles, I went 3.5. Not really much in it, is there?
1: Not really much in it, no. I, I, I'm going to stay at four, yep. but I respect your 3.5 as well.
0: All right. Um, <clears throat> when they they start to talk and the investigation starts to open up, um, did you find that... In terms of her role in the plot, uh, Effie was very similar to how um, Hattie Doran in *The Noble Bachelor* was meant to was meant to be viewed like this American with the history in the other in the other country. Her husband died. She was now over here, had a little bit of a secret, but was trying to happily settle herself down. Like it, it just felt to me like we'd read this character before—a widow with money that was going to give her money to her husband and did give her money to her husband. I was still thinking money and secret, and maybe her husband comes back, you know, because that's what happened in *The Noble Bachelor*. Maybe Doyle wanted us to think that this was the same sort of gig.
1: Possibly, but I mean, not to—and I know it's not a a, a big uh, difference, but I believe that in this case. Effie was an Englander but she was living in America when she was young and that's where she met the the lawyer Mr. Hebron right
0: okay sure yeah you could be and if Mr.
1: Hebron is a lawyer and he's black in the south in the 1890s chances are she could have probably been some sort of like pro like you know like uh not I know abolitionism is, is, is done by then but you know some kind of you know like uh early social justice warrior in that way. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, you're right. It says here that uh, she went out to America when she was young and lived in the town of Atlanta where she married this Hebron who was a lawyer with good practice. They had one child, but the yellow fever broke out badly in the place and both husband and child died of it. I've seen his death certificate. This sickened her of America and she came back to live with a maiden aunt at Penner in Middlesex. Yes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, she must have been a very progressive, liberal-minded woman. And that kind of doesn't jive with why she lent all of her money over to her husband and said, yeah, you can take it all, but please, when I when I want money, give it to me, type thing. It's kind of weird.
1: Yeah, but I guess he was so besotted by her that he just didn't notice, I suppose, or well, yeah. didn't, didn't care at the time, and he trusted her, and, That's and funny. she implored him.
0: Well, there, yeah, I mean, you're right in what you're saying, but he is standing here differently to the other Men certainly like Saint Simon, who needs money so that um, he doesn't become a victim of primogeniture. Uh, you've got him saying, When we married, my wife made all over all of her property to me rather against my will. He must be the first man in this entire canon to refuse money from a woman <laughs> in marriage or to, to try to save it or preserve it or like not, not try to you know, shackle it somehow.
1: Yeah, he's like on the opposite side. He's, he like usually when it comes to like inheritance and money with a woman, there's usually leads to some sort of motive for doing something. <laughs> yeah. If you catch my drift.
0: Well, yes, and well, yeah, but also, how many of how many fathers have we seen trying to protect their own interests by not letting uh, their daughter's money get away from them? Whether they, yes. dre- they dress up like weirdos or whether they they lock their daughters in in closets and bedrooms and you know there's. <laughs> It, it this guy's like oh i didn't want her money but uh she made me do it so okay
2: <laughs>
0: anyway
1: yeah he's kind of like a bit of a uh he's a, he's a bit of a um, a doormat and and initially yeah did you did you feel that way too yeah
0: all right cool um what about this face uh there's a little description of it here uh i'm happy to to read it unless you want to
1: no no uh you got there first so you go ahead
0: okay um <clears throat> I don't know what there was about that face, Mr. Holmes, but it seemed to send a chill right down my back. I was some little way off so that I could not make out the features, but there was something unnatural and inhuman about the face. That was the impression I had, and I moved quickly forward to get a nearer view of the person who was watching me. But as I did so, the face suddenly disappeared, so suddenly that it seemed to have been plucked away into the darkness of the room. I hope that's not his way of saying she took off the mask. I stood for five minutes thinking the business over, and trying to analyze my impressions. I could not tell if the face was that of a man or a woman, but the color was what impressed me most. It was of livid, dead yellow, and with something set and rigid about it, which was shockingly unnatural. Livid, dead. That's almost an oxymoron, isn't it?
1: Livid? Well, livid means, like, full of anger, usually. That's what I always thought. Like, so when you're livid, you're, you're just full up, your it's, it's almost like opaque okay almost, I guess you could say, is maybe, maybe what he was trying to get at, maybe.
0: Yeah, okay. But then dead.
1: Yeah. That's definitely, yeah, that, that's a bit of a contradiction for sure. Anyway,
0: it doesn't matter. It's curious. It's a curious expression, which I guess helps to reinforce his confusion and his feelings of unsettlement. Um, anyway, yeah, so this is kind of creepy, though. Like, I do like this element in the story. I find that this is cool.
1: Yeah, I was definitely curious when I read this story about what the yellow face was because when he said to look at, like, sickened or sickly, I, when I, when we, of course, when they mentioned yellow fever and then, uh, you know, think of yellow, you were thinking of, in, in a time period where this was written, you automatically go to the racist angle, right? Like a Fu Manchu type, like, That's evil right. Chinese man, right? Yeah. yeah. But really, I think Doyle wasn't maybe trying to suggest that. Do you think he was trying to kind of scare the audience with a scary specter of the Chinese man, the celestial, or do you think he was just trying to create just a creepy image, just to, just as a whole, you know, like
0: that, yeah, look- I see what you're saying. Um, certainly, that ethnic slur did exist, as it's you know, I think you could be onto something, man. Like we've also got the opium wars that have been going on, uh, which resulted, of course, in opium becoming cocaine becoming such a problem uh, in the city and within the UK, I guess, to a greater extent. So the Chinese heavily involved in that. The Chinese, the yellow face reference. Yeah, you, you could be onto something. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that... I think he was smart to play with the connotations, whether he wanted us to go there or not. He knew that he was bringing these elements into the story that might make us think uh, through our own bigotry and the readers' racism, probably, of something,
1: something, um... And again, you have yeah, that kind of yeah. post-acknowledgement of the sign of four.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, and some of the issues that it raised. Yeah. And then lowered into the Thames. And lowered into the Thames. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it, didn't, or,
0: it didn't so much lower them, it shot them with uh, lead.
1: It shot them into the Thames, floating to the bottom of the Thames, yes. Uh-huh. Anyway, um...
2: Uh, <laughs> Poor, poor,
1: poor. Okay, so... So, so investigation, I was uh, I was 3.5 with the investigation. I, I liked the, the sleight of hand the author pulled against us in the end, the wool over our eyes being, you know, the mat being pulled underneath us. But as a whole, the investigation was kind of straightforward, and there wasn't really much to it besides him going to the house and breaking the door down and Holmes making some supposition about, you know... Someone's being blackmailed, so there wasn't really much of an investigation in this story at all. So I think even three point five is generous.
0: Well, that, that's what I gave it. I gave it three point five. I, I do think it was generous, but I was I was interested in the story. Uh, yes. I, I didn't. I, I like the way it was write, written. Sorry. I mean, I, it was something different, and style is important when we're giving these investigation marks as well. So. It wasn't yes. quite as formulaic, and I thought it was interestingly written, even if it meant that Holmes and Watson were a little bit on the on the back step, and they were just kind of followers. And after reading Silver Blaze, um, I I was happy to be kind of ahead of the game a little bit, you know.
1: Yeah, and I and I understood, you know, Monroe's um, frustrations, but I just didn't find the behavior of Effie believable in that scenario.
2: I think that was my main problem.
1: What do you think she would have done? I guess in the time, I guess Doyle is saying that in that time period, people would be reluctant to get that information. And she would have been, she would she wouldn't, but I mean, she could have tested, you know, if she was, to me, if she married, and to me, like if she married a black lawyer in Atlanta, being from England, that would indicate she has a civil rights suffragette kind of uh, background to her. So when she moved back to England to live with her maiden aunt there and then when she met Monroe, Monroe would have known about her her feelings towards these things, right? Mm-hmm. Which, leads, I mean,
0: which leads us on to the inconsistency of her just giving over all of her money to him.
1: Yes, exactly. Wow. That's true, yeah. Now that, you, now that you make that point in that way, that does make more sense now too. Or does it make sense in this case? So to me, I found that kind of like a bit of a I guess not a plot hole, but it was definitely a stumbling block in the story for me that made me kind of take that investigation, uh, not so much the investigation, but the style, the narrative and and, and the quality of it, it brought it down a peg peg for me.
0: Is this a case of a story where Conan Doyle has ingredients or features that are really interesting in terms of their depth and their potential for development? But he's trying to cram them into a short story where maybe they deserve a little bit more room to breathe.
1: That is a fair assessment.
0: We've seen it before. We spoke about it before, haven't we? Oh, we have. Like, like That that was my major criticism with a speckled band is how much of it was info dropped instead of spread out in a larger text. I think that would have made it a yes. great story. You know, the, yes, in, the I agree. inconsistencies here in Effie's character, as you have pointed out with her suffragette attitude or at least her liberal mind in, in having an interracial relationship at that time, uh, being an English woman in New York. Oh, that, that's a sting song for that, isn't there? Or an Englishman in New York. <laughs> or Atlanta, sorry, an English Atlanta. woman in Atlanta. Yeah, that's Effie's too. Way
1: different from New York, man. That's in Georgia, right? So. Uh, yeah, I understand that.
0: Yeah, and that, that's something else too. This isn't a northern relationship. This is a relationship she's having in the South, which is really bold for its time.
1: Yeah, that's it, it's definitely something to think about in, in that way. And again, I think it proves more of some of the inconsistencies to me that hamper me giving this a higher mark than I did. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, I don't know. I didn't know until we started speaking about them that these um, these kind of inconsistencies were as well spelled out as they are. But obviously, something was working in my mind because I gave this a three in investigation. Uh, I liked the happy ending. I thought it was interesting. It, it, but the there were obviously some pitholes here. So, yeah, I went for a three overall, which is still a passing mark because I was interested in reading it and I was enjoying it. And I liked having a kind of step ahead in the, you know, going along the path. But I, I obviously didn't get all of these things, and I don't think they were as well fleshed out of the as they could have been.
1: Yeah. And, again, I think that carries into the perpetrator uh mm-hmm. Greeting as well, which I also gave uh, three point five. Yeah, so uh, did I. I think Effie, I guess you could view as a perpetrator in in in, in that light. Uh, her motivations were interesting, uh, and it was sympathetic, and it was different from what we usually had before. And I really can't put much temp- perpetrator to the original suspect, the yellow face itself. You know given the reveal
2: mm-hmm.
1: so and if did appear as a character in the story she wasn't like a posthumous she wasn't of just hearsay and she did stand out in the story and you understood that she was upset about something but she, but she also seemed kind of like she was going to was she going to tell him at some point and was she just waiting the right moment to tell him but I think when her husband starts freaking out and just saying how and, and, and you're like not talking to each other anymore and not making eye contact maybe that's the time to fess up and Again, I just find it's the inconsistency of her character that weakens it a little bit. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, three point five for me.
0: I went three point five as well. Um, I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, and I too can't understand why. Like, what was her plan? Like, honestly, she sent for them to come over there, and you know they moved into a cottage just next to them. Like, I, I don't understand what she was keeping the secret for. Like she's obviously now being shown as a really stupid woman instead of a smart liberal minded woman she's a very stupid woman like i don't i just don't get all these different signals it's weird because of course your husband's going to find out if you if you act differently around him and your daughter is living in the neighborhood like it's all weird because this isn't a secret that but then maybe it is maybe this is a secret that she feels ashamed of because um she didn't tell him in the first place because she was afraid that because it was a black child and it was an interracial relationship that he wouldn't be interested in, in, in seeing her through this. you know I, I don't know. It's weird.
1: It is weird. There is a passage uh, in that, that near the end there uh, when she's explaining uh, you know her feelings towards uh, her, her daughter. Um, let me just get there really quickly here for us. Yeah, there's all kinds of And you of you said that you also that really gave. Yeah, you also gave the. You said you gave it uh, 3.5 as well. Did I, did. I hear you correctly? Yep. Okay, one second here. Right. yeah so so this is like uh, Effie's explanation here. It goes of it cried the lady sweeping into the room with a proud set face. You have forced me against my own judgment to tell you, and I must both make the best. My husband died at Atlanta. my child survived. <laughs> <laughs> you may never have seen open, not open. Why would she carry a locket that doesn't open? I don't understand. Again, right? It's just mm-hmm. inconsistency. She touched a spring, and the, the man strikingly handsome and intelligent-looking, but bearing unmistakable signs upon his features of African descent. That is John Hebron of Atlanta, said the, and a off no- the earth self from my race in order to win.
2: Yeah.
1: Him, but while he lived, did I, for instance, regret it? It's almost, you know, like, it's a classic trope, right? Uh, that there, you know, I, it, it seems like, you know, there is a bit of, like, uh, uh, deeply layered racism in there, no matter, you know, just Attitudes, and uh, she just says that it was our misfortune that our only child look, took after his people rather than mine. It is often so in such matches. A little looser, far than ever her father was. director fair. She is my own dear little girly, and her mother's pet.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that didn't
1: sit well. Same time. No, it didn't sit well. Yeah, uh, it's it's
0: funny though. Just listening to your and request you of that, that hey, great thing of, we had uh, we had some technical difficulties. Uh, you'll you'll get it on playback, but I got most of what you wrote or what you read. But there were some that was okay. kind of chopping out. But uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Like how how would you feel, right? If if your wife, like I'm just thinking about my wife. My wife said, "Here's this locket that didn't open, and here's the name of the man who quote is a nobler no a nobler man never walked the earth." So. Basically, what I'm being told is, you're only second best for me for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Although, he then gestures to take the child in, and I do like that moment. It is a soft, touching moment, yeah, and I like that. It was, not, it was a long two minutes before. So, 12 minutes in total of awkward silence for the boys. It was a long yeah. two minutes before Grant Munro broke the silence, and when his answer came, it was one of which I love to think. He needed two minutes to think, though. Like, he needed two minutes to think. Like, that's 120 seconds of thought (laughs) before he says, we can talk it over more comfortably at home. I (laughs) am not a very good man, Effie, but I think that I am a better man than you've given
1: me credit for being. Good for you, Mr. Monroe. Good for you.
0: Yeah, I guess that's when he started to think about her money, and he was like, hmm. Now I do want it. <laughs> I do want it. Now. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Anyway, I don't know. Weird. Yeah, three point five on the perpetrators. That's what I give it. And going on to the environs. Well,
0: I just just like to say though, like the the, the fact that that Myrtle would have given Effie the hundred pounds, right? That that doesn't rest, doesn't restrict her access to money. That that should have been kind of like. Well, I don't know. It, it should have convinced her that he was already a good husband. The fact that he didn't want to take her money and have control of it, the fact that he would give her money at any time and not question her about it—that should have yes. convinced her that he was a good man already. So she shouldn't have been so shy to reveal this.
1: Yeah, it almost you know? feels like because it's almost, it almost feels like because there was no one else and she was sad and lonely, she mm-hmm. just settled for him in, in a way.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can see that.
1: And but but he thinks the quite opposite, you know, and. Mm-hmm. he had anyway. kind of like he had like the specter of a very vivacious like uh f- you know spirited young woman and i maybe that kind of you know that that you know really made it made her alluring to him and then but for her it was just like you know well this is the rest of my life now and i have to make the best of it right mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so but maybe maybe it's good for her too because she realized that maybe there is a there are other nobler men that walk the earth as well besides uh yeah, you know, Mr. Hubron. There,
0: maybe she was just expecting him to cast her out at that moment. She was, and so yeah, that's, maybe being that's someone why she someone said
1: liberal-minded. Maybe she also saw she's like narrow-minded in that liberal fashion, where she thinks that everyone is a racist except her.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, Conan Doyle didn't properly
1: make her character make sense. Possibly, possibly, you could be onto something there.
0: <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Environ's.
1: Environs, uh, Well, there's really not much there. I mean, you have the apartment, and uh, you have the you know you have the walk in the park. I'm assuming that was Hyde Park, uh, mm-hmm. or or one or one of the such. Uh, that was different. Uh, you know they had to go for a walk in the park and standing in the qu- walking around in the quiet, enjoying each other's company and observing nature and how like Watson described. You know the the you know the, uh, the the plants changing and whatnot um, the apartment uh, you know is is, is, is it was the usual two b two two one b baker street fair and then you have the the house in norbury and the cottage the cottage was was definitely um, ominous and you know with the yellow face being there it did create some great atmosphere but to me again it's just it was standard kind of stuff and I think we've seen a lot more better atmospheric uh, pretensions by Cookhorn and Doyle in these stories so I'm sticking I think on 3.5 when it comes to environs
0: yeah I had a 3 for the environs because as you say they're pretty thin uh, they don't seem to matter much I originally had a 3.5 but I don't know if you read it the same way like there's a real feeling of, of isolation in this story that made me think this story would be better and more effectively set if, if it took place on the coast Somewhere like a little village somewhere, like Norbury isn't. Hmm. Norbury, like I, I, never thought of these cottages as just being on a residential street or near one another. Like I always felt the one would be down towards a beach, you know, a little bit more interestingly on the coast, and the other one would be up a bit. Like I don't know. It just I, I, there's a closeness about the story. Her running out in the late night to to go to uh, this this cottage and what's going on there that you just wouldn't think it's down the road of hundreds of other homes and dozens of other people kicking around It felt i don't know that i i don't like where this story is set i guess is what i'm saying like i don't think this was a good selection by conan doyle to set a story of this closeness
1: i would have liked to see it more isolated because especially is it felt Actually, that way to me given the fact that she wants to she wants to hide the whole uh, <laughs> yeah exactly she wants to hide the child and everything right and
0: yeah let's have a kid with a yellow mask creeping out the whole fucking neighborhood
1: it's like halloween all 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 day (laughs) yeah exactly all year yeah let's go to the
0: halloween house kids see what's going on up there now there's a strange woman running from it oh what's going on here and there's this crazy scottish woman that just kind of like barks at you when you try to knock on the door (laughs) Eh, whatever like it just it just feels like it should be if it's a secret to be kept a little better disguised than in the middle of this
1: neighborhood Yeah, something tells me too that like a Scotswoman maid or something was watching over the child for her. I think she would have told like to me if, and I know you probably have more experience with Scotswomen than I do, of course. But don't you think she would have told Effie you are being a stupid idiot? I would have hoped so. Yes. Aren't they known for you know like aren't they known for being you know as blunt as possible? Uh, You'd think so. Yeah. Anyway, unless she was paid, unless she was paid well. Oh, she she would have been paid well. Okay, then maybe that would that would probably uh, forestall her honor then.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, she had a rich husband and it was all part of the family employment, right? This was a family secret, after all. And besides, yeah, this gets the woman closer to her own home, coming back to Scotland, so... True, true. You know.
1: All right. so, so what, did, what did you do? So, at 3.5, yeah. you're at three. We move on to the supporting cast, the yeah. supporting players, our dramatis personae, mm-hmm. and...
0: <laughs> Dramatis, I think not. Um,
2: <laughs>
0: the little girl, the little girl in the mask, has got a bit of scare uh, factor for me, so that's cool. Um, but not enough to really warrant much of a score. The Scottish woman barks a few sentences, but that's it. Uh, and then you've got the client, who is pretty cool at the beginning. But then I realize what's cool about him is the fact that Holmes dissects him. And that's not really cool about him. That's more cool about Holmes. So Exactly. I went two point five for the secondary here. I, I like I like the blueprint that Conan Doyle has created, but as I said a few moments ago, and as I know you did as well, these are features that are not properly fleshed out. These guys could could breathe nicer and they could be more engaging if we knew more and had more more of a step with them so I think they fit in a bigger story where I get to learn about what happened in Atlanta you know like I would have even taken one of those big Roy lot info drops about what these stories or what these characters were doing in America because it's more interesting than this and the whole yellow fever and all that stuff like I don't know it, it feels like a bigger story for these characters than what we get on the page and so 2.5 maybe that's a bit harsh but that's
1: where I went Two point five. Uh, I, I think three is fair. Yeah, you're you're probably
0: right. Three might be more fair. Um,
1: yeah, do you know what?
0: I I enjoyed following. I enjoyed following them. I, you, you're right. Three is probably a better better fairness to them. So that's what I'll do. So that brings a little tangent on my
1: account, but again, if you feel that way, you feel that way, right? Yeah, I do. I, I feel like
0: maybe it is a little too stiff for them. They're not that bad, and and I guess the fact that I'm saying there's good stuff about them deserves more than just a pass. So
1: yeah, three for me. That is fair, and all that you said about it are exactly how how I feel about the supporting cast in the story. All right, so that's seventeen. For question, you. I can say. Pardon? That's
0: seventeen out of twenty-five for you on that one.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. And what were you at on that one? I was a 16.5. Uh, again, we're, we're, it's just a little shade there, eh? A shade of difference.
0: A little shade of difference, buddy. We were, we were identical with the Silver Blaze. We were 0.5 on that one, and we were 0.5 on uh, Cardboard Box. So interestingly enough, uh, before we leave the yellow face, um, can we say that we both agree that there are elements of this story that would have been really nice and rewarding to see better
1: developed? I, 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 I think so. But for the same time, it was kind of a sentimental ending, you know, and a little bit sappy in some ways. And it was, I guess back yeah. then it was probably, probably, it might have been controversial. Even I, I have uh-huh. no idea.
0: Well, does this satisfy the critics as an apology for the racism in the sign of four? I wouldn't know because we don't have access to their responses. <laughs> does it satisfy the modern critics, the post-colonial the, critics?
1: It, they seem fine. I mean, as I mentioned, the Goodreads stuff. I mean, it's very, you know, like they said, oh, this is it's a standard story, and there wasn't, and uh, some of them were pointing out the racism of the story, but they also really liked how in the end they took the kid in. So maybe they found that this was kind of a a foreshadowing, you know, to, to the equality of today, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, that brings us to the end anyway, pal. And as with our previous two stories today, you have the choice of musical adventures, accompaniments to this the story, Adventure of the Yellow Face. What would you like to listen to? i choose to? door number two. Well, I haven't given you them all yet. <laughs> you just want to go for two? You just want to go two? Just
1: tell, me what, tell me what choices I have then.
0: You have um, door number one or door number two. <laughs> so yeah, you, you got two choices. In that case then I'll potentially door number one. <laughs> oh, you went door number one. That's kinky. You almost selected another Stevie Wonder tune, Ebony and Ivory. Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney.
1: Ebony yeah, and Ivory, great choice, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. <there. laughs> but instead, the track that we're gonna to listen to is a track from a great film that you know, but it's a track that is sung by Huey Lewis and the news representing the rekindled love between the two and their new Atlanta-born daughter. Here we are, going once, going twice. I'm selling to you the power of love, buddy. (laughs) so there you are the power of love that's from back to the future isn't it am I wrong in saying that
1: oh, I think you're thinking back in time aren't you Not Back.
0: To, I thought that was back to or the maybe future maybe
1: they, they use both songs from that movie
0: uh, maybe they do anyway I thought that was uh, that was pretty cool because you know <laughs> you, you got a brand new family now and it's all because of uh, Myrtle's love there we go so that's it, pal. Our first move through the adventures—sorry, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, Part One. We've got three more parts to come, and uh, for you, at least in the next couple of weeks, you only have two stories to worry about.
1: Yeah, you got the stockbroker's <laughs> clerk, which I'm up on. So you'll have that uh, to enjoy first, and All right. then we'll move on to the uh, the following two after that. Super.
0: Uh, right? Any any departing messages then to share for this, the twenty fourth of June?
1: I think the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, the for the next collection, started out pretty strong so far. I really liked Silver Blaze and uh, the uh, cardboard box. Yellow face, not as much, but um, every now and then you're going to have like a little dip, right?
0: Yeah, and as we said, there are some cool stuff in the story. It just didn't all work out together.
1: Yeah, the potential wasn't actualized. Mm. That sounds, like, that sounds like that sounds like that sounds like business speak to me, like marketing. Chart. I know, maximize your potential, like Tony <laughs> Robbins or something.
0: <laughs> right. Well, buddy, look, uh, it's been fun. Um, we're going to definitely fine tune our responsibilities for research and make sure that next time we got it nailed.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I would say that in the case of us uh, doing short stories, um, doing each of these short stories, we should. If we do the rule of doing like um, I do one story, then that means I cover both the uh, publication and the outline. And mm-hmm. then when you get and when your story comes, you do the publication and the outline. And then yeah. reverting back to uh, me again, yep. or we reverse the order and on, on one show someone gets two and an- an- another person gets one.
0: Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. So starting out, then um, we both you did two this week, two plot summaries. So why don't I do two plot summaries? I'll do numbers one and three, and you can do number two, and I'll do the publication information and plot summaries for the stockbroker's clerk, was it? Yeah. And the other one at number three, and then you can do the one in
1: the middle. Sounds good.
0: Right, pal. Well, from over here in uh, in Scotland, it's uh, goodbye from me, and I know goodbye from you.
1: Yeah, goodbye from me, and goodbye from me to you, and lunchtime for me now. Lunchtime, okay, well...
0: Have fun, pal. Uh, We'll finish off with a bit more Huey Lewis in the
1: news. Yeah, when we come back, uh, I'll be into my 36th year. Pretty crazy. Birthday post.
0: Watch for your birthday post, buddy. It's on the way.
1: Birthday post. All right.